Sorry, what did I miss? Everything. Anglo thieves. Gettle's gone. Alina, are you fake texting? It's super important. <laughs> oh, I might as well just growl, that'd be about it. I have failed the sisterhood. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. We're not your judge. Welcome to dinner, everybody. It's the long-promised Hannibal episode of Angle Fees, and we are joined by big-name fan, Cleolinda Jones. And so, we're, somebody uh... help me. Help me. Somebody help me. <laughs> I didn't know I was coming for dinner. We're having breakfast for dinner. We're having breakfast for dinner. It's lunchtime! <laughs> I... It's brunch. Brunch for dinner, and it's... Nothing here is vegetarian. I want a mimosa. Okay. The mimosa's well, probably people, too. People. So I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And it's our one-year anniversary! Yay! One year of you listening to us talk about things. And there seem to be a fairly decent number of you. And we love all of you. Hi! Thank you. Now I feel really special. You are special. You're also our first repeat guest. Wow. Yeah. So Anglophies is one years old and the cake is people. The cake is people. The champagne is people. The orange juice was fertilized with people. The avocado is just an avocado, though. It's true. Well, that's what it wants you to think. Right. <laughs> we <laughs> we did sacrifice an avocado. Alina, you are recording, are you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've done that before. <laughs> We did sacrifice another avocado to make sure this episode recording went smoothly. And Alina did it this time, and there will be pictures, because she carved it. Yeah. Like a jack-o'-lantern? Did you end up doing that? <laughs> it was. It really wasn't ripe, so it was really hard to carve, so I just kind of carved the AF initials into it. I hope that would appease the podcast guy. I guess I didn't want them to confuse it with somebody else's avocado, so they'd know which podcast to smile on. You know, I was wondering if maybe it was, like, my fault bringing some kind of curse, because it was two different podcasts that took a nosedive, but then I wasn't on y'all's, so it couldn't exactly. have been me. Exactly. Couldn't have been so it was just angry, angry podcast gods. And we have figured out the proper way to appease them, and apparently that's an avocado. It could be people. According to a friend of mine, in certain parts of the world, it's slang for male anatomy. Oh. So the avocado okay. is also kind of people. That's not really a compliment. I, do, I did not know this when I suggested the avocado. It just happens. Maybe the podcast gods just want male sacrifices, and this was just the closest you could get. Sure. Kevin? <laughs> It's a good thing my husband's not home for this one because <laughs> who knows. So here we have three fangirls in a neophyte. Um, so we actually have somebody to do something other than go, oh my god! <laughs> not that I won't be doing a little bit of that when we get to the TV show. Uh, but uh, let, let's start us off. So we did the potpourri last month, but today we're very focused on our one uh, one topic, delicious, tasty topic of people and food and cannibals. 
So, uh, everybody's introduction to the series. Now, I know, Cleo, you're a book fan, but, um, and I think all three of you have read the books? I've read most of the books. I've not read Hannibal Rising. I enjoy the books, but I'm really mostly, like, specifically a Silence of the Lambs movie fan. Mm. Very specifically. And the others are kind of, like, varying degrees of, oh, that's great. Oh, that's entertaining oh what the fuck was that so <laughs> i can i come at it as someone who was ever so slightly obsessed with the books when i was in high school i was obsessed with two book series when i was in high school one of which was the ian rankin rebus novels which is a crime series set in edinburgh and the other one was this primarily because i enjoyed looking for books that i could read well in class that would disturb my teachers <laughs> and nothing disturbed my teachers give it better than crime novels of cannibalism that an american psycho now there's a story i should tell you one day <laughs> but I was all, I'm also a fan of the movie Silence of the Lambs. It's one of my favourite movies of all time as well. Um, but I was just particularly fascinated with the Hannibal character and the dynamic that he has first with Will Graham and then with Clarice Starling and how that just went out of the window from a goddamn 20-story height with the Hannibal book. I'm so dedicated <laughs> to the series. I own hardback copy of Hannibal Rising, which is terrible, by the way, but I still own it because I had to. So <clears throat> I'll say this. As somebody who was this wasn't really part of my um cultural landscape growing up so i'm aware of silence of the lambs is you know it's a big movie so i know hello clarice and that image of the mask and the the thing this being strapped on and caged uh so that's really my first glimpses into the series is just being aware of these of this iconography so i'm gonna go around table and we'll just go everybody else's entry point and let's start with a guest of honor cleo um, I first saw the movie, this is a very strange story, um, my <laughs> mother's cousin is a set decorator on various movies, she did, um, The Haunting and The Fisher King, and, um, I think she, she started out the sets on True Blood, she's done a lot of interesting things, and she was nominated for an Oscar for The Fisher King, the year that Silence of the Lambs won. So my first exposure to the whole thing was clips on the Oscar show. And I'm like 13 years old at that point. And I was like, uh, she, she didn't win, by the way. Um, I, I was like, I, I really want to watch this. And I'm 13. So my mother was like, I don't think so. So I don't think I got to see it until I was 14. And it basically became my favorite movie and has been ever since. And I was really drawn to Clarice. And so... I, I wasn't very interested in Will Graham until the show, at which point they did such a wonderful job that I was very interested in him. But I mostly came into it, and I've, I've talked about this at length, you know, as a 14-year-old with a working mother who took so much shit from the old boys club kind of above her, holding her down in this job, not letting her move forward, making sure she was paid less than them. You know, I'm watching the beginning of the movie and, you know, there's Jodie Foster like literally a foot shorter than everybody in that elevator and she's looking up and they're all kind of either blasé, staring around, not paying attention or giving her the eye. And that to me was just such a metaphor for... You know, she's focused, she's determined, she's going to make her way through the world. And that's the life my mother had. And I'm sitting here at 14 years old going, 
I'm going to be in this world someday. So this whole story was just very, um, it just meant a lot to me. And uh, I was also a very goody two-shoes type. And so the idea that evil could be like attractive and intelligent kind of blew my mind <laughs> as a 14 year old. So, I mean, there, there was, there was that too, but uh, I read the book Red Dragon and I really liked that. And I read the book uh, Silence of the Lambs and I still maintain, I'm talking way too long. I, I still maintain that Silence of the Lambs is one of the best book to movie adaptations ever in that I think it's, a little bit better than the book, which says a lot about both of them. But, and then I read Hannibal the day it came out. Amazon had it on my doorstep, and I was laying on my bed with a box fan, you know, blowing my face. And I'm just sitting here going, "What the fuck is this? <laughs> what the sweet holy fuck am I reading? What what is this?" And I was like home from college, so I I didn't read the book after that. I was like. Now, was that the book he wrote because it, basically he had to because they were threatening to write the book without him? Yeah, they were going to do a movie, and he wrote the book and the script that it was it was based on. Right. And they were basically like, we're going to do a young Hannibal story whether you're with us or not. And so he did. And I was like, I'm done. I'm, you know, I'm going to tap out of this one. And I, I kind of want to see it now just to be like, you know, what was that? <laughs> in conclusion that's my story <laughs> we talked about it the last time you were on when we sort of went on our tangent about Hannibal how we all remember where we were when we where, read the Hannibal where, book where, yeah. where, <laughs> when Clarice was fucked over <laughs> yeah how about you Raiden what was your intro um ironically enough I believe my first introduction to the whole concept of the Silence of the Lambs was also watching the Oscars that year um, Cleo and I are of, of the same age, so I would also have been 13. Um, and I also sometime later acquired a book about screenplay writing that had four different screenplays in it, one of which was the Science of the Lamb screenplay, along with tangents about how this works from a storytelling and from a, a movie storytelling aspect. So like you'd have a chunk of the script and then a, and this works because blah, 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 blah. And stuff like that. Um, the other screenplays in that book was dances with wolves, <laughs> Thelma and Louise. And I think Terminator two. That was very much of the time. Of yeah. The, like the two years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'd read the screenplay and like why this and like how the story structure works long before I saw the movie. I think the first memory I have of actually watching the movie was I was babysitting and it was, (laughs) I know. (laughs) And the baby was about nine months old and like literally that day had sort of figured out object permanence that, that her parents still exist when they're not there and she was very upset and so like the baby was crying and crying and crying seriously cried for like four hours and I just put in Silence of the Lambs because I'm like well I don't like horror and I really really don't and we'll get into that a little bit later um but I I already know this story I already know everything that's going to happen and uh (laughs) I don't know this baby is really upsetting me so that's when I watched it the first time 
I'm pretty sure. Did so you what? not have Labyrinth on hand? <laughs> no, no. These, these were new parents who didn't have who, who didn't have a like kid friendly set of movies yet. I just Did you subconsciously that's... want to eat the baby? Was no. <laughs> No. That would have been the solution to your problem, is all I'm saying. It would have been, but uh, no, I didn't want to eat the baby. I just really wanted the baby to go to sleep. <laughs> or at least stop crying and be a cute little meatloaf baby like I had been told she was. Wait, what? Meatloaf babies, when they just sort of sit there and they do the thing and you know, they don't move and they don't cry. They, they like eat food. Eat, that's pretty much it. They just sit there like a meatloaf. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's a recipe that's probably not on Hannibal's little recipe cards, which are, by the way, amazing. <laughs> the Rolodex of recipes. The, the Rolodex of the rude. <laughs> we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So, Kaylee, were you the one who read the books first? Yes, because when I was younger, my parents used to keep a lot of our old videos in the room that I shared with my sister, and there were three that sat in the on the top shelf that I was always working up the guts to watch when I was younger. One was Sands of the Lambs and the other two were Pulp Fiction and From Dusk Till Dawn. And the video cover for Sands of the Lambs is the very white face of Clarice with the death's head moth in her mouth. And this was the freakiest thing ever to me. So I'm really a total chicken when it comes to movies. And then when I went to my school library, I found out that it was a book. And I thought, books don't scare me. I can read the book instead. But I've got to read the first one. So I read Red Dragon, really fell in love with it, read Silence of Lambs, thought it was brilliant, and I eventually watched the movie, but it wasn't until about, until I was about 15, I think. I read the book when I was about 13 or 14. Um, by this point in time, I'd already been sort of ruined by the, the book Hannibal and wondering what the hell was going on there. But my parents are also big fans of the, the films as well, so they did sort of watch the film with me, and it's remained a favourite since. Um, and it's just one of those things that's always sort of stuck in my head and then when it was announced that they were making a tv show of it i had the panic of oh what are they going to do now i mean the movie of actually the movie of hannibal's pretty decent considering the mess that it came from but the, the hannibal rising thing that felt was already felt like the you know the the flogging of the dead horse and i didn't feel like there was much left to flog <laughs> someone said it it both read and watched like fanfic and i kind of it went, does yeah. Yeah, I see that. It reads like the, the, the Thomas Harris wrote the barest amount he could possibly write to make into a screenplay. I'm going to pretend Hannibal wrote it as fanfic of himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hannibal would be a way better writer than that, I would hope. Well, burn. You know, <clears throat> I was watching the last two episodes this morning, and I think it's episode 12, where Hannibal uses who instead of whom. And I was so disappointed at Pat. 7 o'clock in the morning. I was sitting there going, Hannibal, your accent can range from pleasantly marble mouth to nine comprehensible, but your grammar should not be any less impeccable than your suits. I am disappointed. To be fair, English is like his third language. So I think he's allowed a couple slip-ups. It's incorrect so he can blend in. That's, that's his human suit. There you I go. Bad grammar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice that one? Oh, this bit in, amused me so much. Um, somewhere in one of the middle episodes, when we were introduced to the Miriam Lass storyline, and we have Miriam and and Jack um, yeah, at the crime scene, and she goes, you know, oh, is the, they're trying to profile the killer? Where she goes, like, oh, maybe he's not. You don't think he's white? And she goes, oh, he's exotic somehow. And I'm sitting there, facepalm, and going, like. 
this murder was committed by a European. It is <laughs> no, but then the next oh, line she says is, and that's why you're going to catch him. And I'm like, did you just say awkward. that? <laughs> what? Did you just, what? <laughs> and, I, and I wonder, like, are they going there? And he was like, you better explain yourself. <laughs> She's like, because oh, you think so differently. <laughs> that, like, two line, that, that just tripped into the biggest pile of, oh, man. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it was, I re-listened to our Oscar episode recently because that's where you guys did talk about Hannibal and just the amount of do not want, not sure if want, and oh my God, they're going to ruin this. It, in hindsight, is the most entertaining thing. <laughs> we were so scared. We were so scared. We were so scared. So now that we're flailing in a similar fashion about Dracula... I just want to remind everybody, you know, we were here a year ago with Hannibal. I'm doing it preemptively. I'm doing it as like a don't jinx this superstitious kind of like, well, if I get afraid in advance, it'll work out well. Because it did last time. I'm so scared. (laughs) Did anybody do that in school when they were getting their test back from the teacher and they go, oh, I'm sure it did badly. Because you didn't look up, even though secretly you knew you got that A. I failed. I passed. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I did for the bar exam. <laughs> to be fair, we did spend a large portion of that episode also getting quite excited about many elements of it and just being in a state of I don't know how to handle this. And to be fair, I've now seen the entire season and I still don't know how to handle it. Yeah, it surpassed everything and I can't deal with it. Yeah, I I will admit that I was kind of dubious about watching it because again. I do not do horror. I do not do horror well. I mean, Sean and McGuire's zombie books kept me up for three nights running. How's um, the Parasite book going? Um, I, f- I finished the Parasite book, and it, I had the advantage of reading it when I was so completely boned out exhausted that like, you could have had a zombie outbreak in my backyard, and I would have been like, fuck it, whatever, I'm sleeping, because I can't stay up anymore. Um, and a review for that will be coming out on Smart Bitches in a couple of weeks. Anyway, um, so after the first episode and Cleo did the recap and I was like, okay, all right, you guys are flailing and squeeing and I'd like to flail and squee. So I asked Cleo and Kaylee, <laughs> I don't do horror. Am I going to be scared? And they said no. And they were right. So yay. No mushrooms for anybody. though. No. <laughs> Because I'm I, done I, with the mushrooms. I am done. I, I think my my fear was based in the idea that you would sit there and you would go, why in God's name in 2013 would you bring this character back? And my immediate suspicion was soulless money making. You know, just why, why else would you do it? And so when they started casting it and announcing that, I was like, you know, they, they didn't cast some third-rate Anthony Hopkins impersonator. They clearly got some really interesting choices. And that's when I went, okay, I think I think we're going to be okay now. I think I, they clearly have their own vision for what's going on here. And, you know, watching the DVD extras, it I just love how, how much enthusiasm there is. And, like, on every single little featurette, they'll say, well, we approached somebody for the music we approach somebody for the food and before we could even say would you want to do it they go please let me do it i want to do it please i want to work on this i have all these ideas 
brought the same fan enthusiasm to it that made us afraid it wouldn't be good. You know, so when you realize that we're all kind of in the same boat, that just made me feel so much better about the entire enterprise. Let me ask a question as a neophyte. The the other murders and serial killers that occur in the show, are any of them from books and other movies or are they all original? The... The very first one, like the literally our introduction to Will Graham is there's the couple in the house. Oh, okay. Um, that is. Uh, oh, hey, Francis Spoilers, 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 spoilers for everything. There are spoilers in these woods, and they're going to eat your face. Okay, yeah. The very first murder is Francis Dollarhide. Dollarhide. The, the Tooth Fairy from Red Dragon. Um, it's not mentioned because that's not going to be until season four. Not gone wood. Um, and then Garrett Jacob Hobbs was like, what, a two-sentence mention in Red Dragon? Yeah, he was a backstory. And and it happened, you know, he, he cut his daughter's throat and they, they saved her. And having to shoot him put Will in the hospital for four weeks with depression. So you can tell they extrapolated from this idea. And I don't think she was given a name in the books. I've had people tell me, oh, I saw it was Abigail. And I've I've searched it and can't find it. Well, I'll, I'll have this etymological note. I don't even know if they knew it when they were naming her, but... Abigail is a Jewish name means father's joy. So if they had to come up with one thematically, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also a real Abigail Hobbs who was one of the accused Salem witches. I mean, you would not even believe the oh the depth. image you posted. The- yeah. yeah, with the exact hairstyle and the part and the oh my god, the same expression on her face. I was like Jesus. I mean, you would not believe the amount of you know research and references that got put into just the smallest things. But uh, from watching Brian Fuller's tweets, most of the other killers are not in the books at all. Mm-hmm. Sometimes... Originally, they were going to have um, Benjamin Rasville, who is the head in the Jar and Stance of the Lambs. He was originally going to be in the se- series, but because they couldn't get the rights, those characters became Franklin and Tobias. Which they then just totally threw out the window by killing them off. So, um... <laughs> and it was awesome. Yeah, oh, lot... poor Franklin. <laughs> I feel so sorry for him. A lot of the killers um, are references to other horror movies, though. And mm-hmm. he would tweet various pictures of, like, this was inspired by this movie. And, you know, we looked at this movie for Tobias's, you know, wire. And we looked at... I mean, it's it's in the recaps. I can't even mm-hmm. remember at this point. But speaking of Franklin... People keep pointing out that, like, of all the people on the show, we were okay with the killers, but it was Franklin that weirded us out the most. (laughs) (laughs) The the little creepy man who's like, are you, do you eat people? No? Do you collect trophies? Why are you creepy? What is wrong with you? That was his reaction, it seems to me. You have no legit reason to be creepy. Why? <laughs> that makes you even creepier. Well, it isn't that he was... Cre- Franklin was creepy. It's that he's just so pathetic. He's so pathetic. And he's so annoying. And, like, our very first introduction to him, when he drops that wadded Kleenex, 
soggy wadded filthy Kleenex on the very clean table, and Hannibal's like, "Really, really?" Is that a sharp thing you intake of breath of every viewer when that happened? Just like, "Oh, you're gonna get eaten," and I wonder if he's the one that doesn't get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> well, and on that same episode, you know, Crawford's at the wrong, you know, door, and you're just like, "Oh no, oh no." You done fucked up. You the first time you walked in, you've already made this guy mad. Oh my god! Put down the scalpel. It's gonna be okay. Oh my god! Right. So, what I'd like to do right now is I want to go um, roundtable with you guys, and I want to get your impressions of their casting and demographic changes they made to the characters in this update. Um, and then I'll just come back to myself so I can talk about the casting from a fresh perspective and. We'll see what comes out of that. Uh, let's start with Raiden this time. <laughs> um, I think the casting was basically perfection. I can't argue with any of it. I mean, even even Franklin is properly annoying and pathetic. <laughs> um, I had not really been on in the cult cult of Mads at that point. I am now. I am now, because he's amazing, and he does all of these tiny little micro-expressions, and you can watch him playing Xanatos speed chess as things keep changing. (laughs) And, I mean, it's like just tiny flickers across his face that he has controlled just enough so that the camera can see it, and we can see it, but you can totally believe that nobody else can see it. It's fucking brilliant. Um, I also, I want to talk about Alana Bloom, mm-hmm. um, because she is my Patronus. I love her shoe. <laughs> I love her mind. I love her boots and her coat. And I'd only seen Caroline Devarnas. Devarna. Yeah. Um, I'd only seen her in Wonderfalls and she's such a completely different per- I Sometimes I'm like, this is not, this is not the same actress it just it can't be except that it is and oh i just kermit flail kermit flail and making her into taking the character of alan bloom and making a fascinating complex woman with needs and desires and an inner life and boundaries is amazing and that was just I think one of the best things that Fuller has done for the show is by increasing the number of female characters, fascinating, complex, deep female characters. He's also my, my Patronus. <laughs> How about you, Kaylee? Well, I think, I think the casting is pretty spot on as well. It was a huge coup for them to get Mass Mickelson because this was the first project that he was announced for after he won Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival for The Hunt, the Thomas Winterberg movie. So for them, to, for him to go from that to a TV show in America is, is a, was a pretty big deal. And he is just, he's made Hannibal Lecter scary again. Because even though that Anthony Hopkins performance is iconic, and it is in keeping with the book because Lecter is prone to these you know, big, dramatic, and occasionally rather camp flourishes, he'd become something of a parody by the time he got to the movie of Hannibal and then through various sort of 
um, comedy takes on it, we've all just sort of laughed at it, ha ha, ha tongue slurping and things like that. So to have him become someone that's genuinely terrifying, and he is. I mean, there was all this talk about him being an anti-hero. Oh my god, but he is <laughs> we'll genuinely scary. <laughs> I mean, that that small um, corner of the fandom disappeared very quickly, might we add. The moment the gaslighting started, they were like, oh, he's not, he's not an anti-hero at all. We're just going to go go away somewhere. But yeah, I think Matt's Hannibal... Mickelson bandwagon. Let me just say, the Kaylee signal exists for a reason. It's, it's true. <laughs> uh, well, Alina, he's... did you see that I gave you a bunch of Alina signal posts? Today? No, about a week ago. Possibly. That was a week ago. You can't expect me to remember. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Carry on. The Kelly <laughs> signal does exist for a reason. <laughs> I watched the tag Cleo signal. Like I have that set to watch. So if you actually say that, I will see it. If you're trying to get me, I will actually see that. Can, can I just say that you know those misguided fangirls? Hannibal would never be so gauche as to wear leather pants. It's true. Wait, <laughs> leather pants are a sartorial travesty. Is that a thing they're doing? No. No. It's, oh, is it just the, the Draco, the Draco leather and leather pants? pants? I'm just checking. Leather pants are people. I'm just checking. <laughs> On this show, they are. Kaylee, what did you think about the um, the changes in in terms of you know they're not all straight old white men now. I really appreciated that, and I love the fact that Brian Fuller pulled it off so effectively. For every time I hear someone talk about how it was really hard to get a woman into a certain show or a film or stuff, I just want to point to this and say, he, he managed it pretty easily, because not just with Alana Bloom, but with Freddie Lowndes, who I think is a much more effective and calculating character in this TV show as a woman than she is in, in the books and the film as a man. Um, not just because she's fabulously dressed. I want her wardrobe so badly. Like hers and Alana's, I think are the two of the best dressed women on TV right now. Which is a sad, shallow thing. But back to their actual character, I like the fact that she is the perfect sort of ruthless tabloid journalist, but she is someone who has to live with the consequences of what she does. Like when she is sort of take, taken um, by Gideon and has to keep Shelton alive. She could have easily walked away, and I think the character in the book would have walked away because what Freddie does in the book to Will is particularly nasty. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to see what she does over the next couple of seasons and then to watch her burst into flames. <laughs> well, the casting that I think surprised me the most was Will Graham for Hugh, uh, by Hugh Dancy, an actor who I just did not register at all beyond being Claire Danes' really attractive husband. He's really brilliant. He is heartbreakingly good as Will Graham. The scene where he asks, he's, you know sort of hallucinating and Hannibal tells him that there's nobody there and he says please don't lie to me oh my god my heart breaks every time I think about that moment Um, and he also pulls off that pretty pretty decent American accent Mm. it's really kind of funny watching the gag reel because every so often (laughs) he'll slip into the British like there's one where he walks into a room and he sort of stands there and he goes oh I'm sorry I I have no idea what I've meant to be doing <laughs> and he he goes back into his his British accent, and sometimes he fucks up, and he's like, mm, he stays in the American. Keep going, words. keep going, keep going, yeah. keep going. Trip Good twice, work, guys. <laughs> up Motive. Top. Cleo, how about you? Uh, I also, I remember. I think he was the first person I heard that they were casting, and I kind of went, "Huh, okay." Uh, that's a really interesting, you know, place to go with it. I, he's so great. I don't think any, this is such a backhanded compliment. I don't think anybody had any idea he had this in him. 
don't mm-hmm. think anybody did. He's and the he's, dude from Ella Enchanted. It, it's just so amazing that King Arthur. Was that's, it that was my first thought when they cast the two of them. I was like, oh shit. Okay, I have to watch Shopaholic, this. Shopaholic, yeah. This is crazy. Um, no, I mean, I think it says so much that in a show with one of the most famous villains of all time, he completely carries the show. Mm-hmm. Just completely. And has more screen time, despite mm-hmm. the name of the show. And he just completely carries it. And he is one of the most interesting faces to watch on the show. And it's so easy to have a leading man just be kind of this flat cardboard straight man for everybody else to dance circles around with their quirky, you know, character acting. But he's like the most interesting character and almost performance on the show. You know, okay, close tie. But I thought that was just amazing. The other thing, the other point I realized we were going to be okay was when they cast Lawrence Fishburne because the other... Crawfords have had kind of a deceptive gentleness about them, I've noticed. And with Lawrence Fishburne, you immediately get this sense of authority, which they then play with because you realize he's using this authority to kind of override people's concerns about Will, to kind of slightly bully or persuade Will to stay and... Crawford is probably the character I have the most thoughts about <laughs> in I, some ways. I, I like that, but we love we love Lawrence Fishburne as someone with authority. So we also kind of, you know, the whole Morpheus kind of mm-hmm. baggage. We, we love that. And I, I love how they're kind of saying he's got this authority, but they also undermine it by saying, you know, he's got good intentions, but he's kind of misusing this authority as well. And clearly he doesn't look anything like the previous Crawfords. You know, they you know, went with somebody who wasn't white. But the fact that you immediately knew why they cast him told me that they clearly had this really great vision for what they wanted to do. And it wasn't just, let's just kind of do a third-rate, you know, redo of this whole thing. And I loved what they did, you know, like y'all are saying, with the women. And, you know, watching the first few episodes, they... Caroline Deverna has does such a great job because they set this character up to be so amazing and she delivers on it. Like when they talk about the sublime Alana or how she's one of the few, you know, psychology department professors who's not a personality deficient. I mean, they keep talking about how wonderful she is and she brings that. And it's so easy to inform the audience of what a character is supposed to be like and then you're like what are you talking about this person is okay but she brings that and then even more and then lays it down on Hannibal and tells him he's rude and that is like the best thing that ever happened ever okay get over that is there an actual piece of fan art that I'm remembering where it's that scene where she goes shockingly rude and then he starts eating his own hand or am I imagining? <laughs> that sounds like a thing that exists. And it doesn't exist. God, I saw that. No, but can we have a moment for Beverly? Because I love Beverly. And I, oh, I, I love her too. I love also that, you know, she's kind of emblematic of the fact that between the two, you know, lead guys, we have all of these relationships with women on the show that are not necessarily or primarily romantic. And I mm-hmm. think these two men... They have, re- they have relationships with almost all of these women. I mean, I don't think Will has met Adelia. 
but each of their relationships is different from the one the other guy has with them. Yeah. Like, you know, there's Hannibal and he's kind of in a room with Beverly and, you know, they're like, do you want to go help us find, you know, the organ harvester? And he, he has this look on his face like, she counts as a friend. She totally counts as a friend, you know. Mm-hmm. I know people. And, <laughs> you know, whereas Will just really depends on her in this I just love that it's a platonic friendship and it's so important to him and she's so important in keeping him together, but we don't have to get kissy face Mm -hmm. because that's just what TV shows are supposed to do. But, you know, I, I just love that there's so many, and you know, then there's Abigail who has different surrogate father relationships with each of them. They're totally Mm -hmm. different. And then the way Bedelia is, I don't even know what the fuck is going on with Bedelia, and I love that I don't know. And I I just love, oh, and then Freddie, I don't even know what the fuck is going on with, with Freddie in terms of Hannibal and, like, what are we going to what do about What are we to do about that? I don't know, Hannibal. What are we to do about that? I know there was so much fanfic written about that scene. You know there was. Oh, yeah. You know, but, and then how, you know, in turning her... Not necessarily because they made her a woman, but because they made her so much smarter and more capable and brought her in sooner. Mm-hmm. She's not just so repulsive and sleazy and kind of lazy and not that smart, which is how the Freddie Lons character is in the books and the other uh, the movies. Because they made her smart and calculating and gave her things to do, she now has this actually pretty complex relationship with Will, particularly if they're going to bring her in the second season and kind of have her help him because my theory was if she realizes this other guy is the Chesapeake Ripper, that's so much bigger a story for her. It is in her best interest to prove that Will is innocent because that's shocking in itself and then go after this other guy over here. You can't see me pointing. I'm totally gesturing while I do this. (laughs) It's so much more in her best interest to stir up this shit and, you know, Will Graham acquitted. Famous society psychiatrist. You know, oh my god, he's the cannibal. I mean, that's... He's the cannibal and I totally did not eat meat in his... In his dining she room. She is now the only person who's avoided being peopled. Oh, please. You know there oh, was, you people, think there in was salad people in the, drive, in the salad dressing? Was. Come on. Well, there, there was, was a dead no... bird skull on the plate. Did nobody twig that there was something wrong with that? <laughs> There's a moment when Hugh Nancy was talking about, he was like, I think this was at the second, the fan panel. He was like, did nobody notice? Did nobody at that table look at that and go, this guy's a bit weird. What? <laughs> What is that? There was no dressing on her salad because I took a screen cap and it was completely dry vegetables, which is why I wonder how it could possibly be the best salad she's ever eaten. But that said, all those plants in his dining room are his herb garden. When they pointed that out, I forget who did. I think it was a set designer who pointed it out. It was a set designer. I have the the link to the article about the set decoration, which we will include. Include? Include? Because I, I was looking at that and I was like, that's such a random, raggedy assortment of plants. Would he not have something like geometrically symmetrical? And then when we realized what it was, I was like, oh, my God, who thought of that? That's genius. It is genius. So Because anything, anything food driven like that, right, makes so much more sense. But then Bedelia has little pots of herbs in her kitchen. And you can tell he was like, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it better. <laughs> and fancier. 
Or he gave her those pots. (laughs) I... That whole thing I, in the end where she's like, he swallowed his tongue and that's why he didn't kill me. And then you're like, but then she's with Hannibal saying, I told half-truths and you, Hannibal fed him his tongue. Hannibal came in. <laughs> well, the thing is that happens in the books that he's very clearly made somebody just by talking to them in the next cell, made them swallow their own tongue. So the moment somebody said that. Like, everybody who knew that backstory just, like, started screaming. <laughs> I saw everybody on Twitter just flipping the hell out. And Brian Fuller was like, yeah, that's why we put that in. <laughs> that is why that happened. That is why That's one of the reasons I like this TV show is if you've read the books and seen the movies, you can spot certain depths to the show. But if you're coming to it completely new, you can still appreciate it on that level. Mm-hmm. It doesn't require you to be the kind of nerd that Brian Fuller and the crew are. <laughs> Although that can be an extra yep. level of fun because he's clearly having caps lock fun pointing it all out I on Twitter. Feel- <laughs> like I'm about to ruin this show for Cleo forever <laughs> because you okay, can't. there's no way to ruin it. <laughs> um, could this is for anybody who doesn't follow us on Twitter? But when I, I started watching it, and I started yes. live tweeting uh, bits <laughs> of it, so I I kn- the camera spends so much time just up in Hugh Dancy's face, and his nostrils are just they do not match, and one of them is crooked, and I and you have to stare at them. <laughs> I've already blocked it from my mind. It's symbolic. It's thematic. I don't care. You can't ruin this. <laughs> nostrils damage. But I the thing about... You. I have thoughts about a lot of characters, but this is... Well, this is more like... I think I'm going to disappoint you because... Bedelia uh, de Mornier, right? That's that's the f- character's full name? De Mornier, yeah. like the, uh, the writer, yeah. So... <sighs> Apparently, the original casting imagined Angela Lansbury in that role. And Gillian Anderson, you know, she's great. She's fantastic. And, you know, I watched The X-Files, so I get that nostalgia. And I know that she's your spirit animal, Cleo. But as I watched those scenes, like, I loved her in the scenes. But a part of me was just thinking, Angela Lansbury in these scenes is all I want from life right now. And I am just so sad that I didn't get it. I, w- I want Angela Lansbury in that role. I want to see what she would have done. I think it would have been. Not that it's bad as is, but for me, the Angela Lansbury version, I think, is the one that I would have just loved to bits. I think that would have been a very interesting dynamic just because she is so much older than Hannibal there would have almost been a motherly element to it although if you've seen Angela Lansbury in The Company of Wolves where she plays a batshit grandmother to Little Red Riding Hood I think that would have been a very interesting way to do it as well just Angela Lansbury in general I love her as well I know that's that's why I I thought I was like Cleo was going to be so disappointed in me it's fine it's totally fine because that was a really interesting idea and what I love is that they pitched it as we would love to have Jessica Fletcher from Murder, She Wrote be Hannibal Lecter's psychiatrist. <laughs> I'm like, I respect that. I respect <laughs> that you wanted to do that. Um, it, and it actually made me think of something. Now, I'm, I'm sure this has been a thing that's been happening in Hollywood a lot, but it's the second time in a fairly short span that I've actually confirmed found out that a role that was meant for basically an older woman a senior has then been cast with a young woman it had to be rewritten for it and the previous one was also it was a film but it was also work I really liked and that was Dread and it just kind of made me a little bit sad that you know 
these roles that, that probably, you know, there's so many actresses that would have been great in these roles. And it's that kind of ageism that's pushing them out. And it's just a little bit sad. There's probably an executive out there going, no, we need somebody younger and sexier when you don't. Well, I think the casting of Gillian Anderson is also a callback to the fact that Scully was based on Clarice Starling. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not saying it was a bad thing to begin with, but I do, I, I do think, you know, the age played, played a part in this that I don't appreciate. You know what I mean? I would like them to find roles for older women, ha- having already given this to somebody younger. I would like them to find other roles mm-hmm. for older women. I, I would really like that. So I have a question about Jack Crawford. Is he supposed to be an asshole? Yeah. Like, yes. I wasn't sure because it, it was Lawrence Fishburne and have, knowing nothing about him, I came into this thinking, okay, so this is kind of one of the good guys. But I realized fairly early on that I do not like this person. Will's wife, Molly, hates him, just hates him. And is just like, in, don't in you the talk him in, in, in Red Dragon, which would be, you know, right now, Will would not be married. He's not supposed to be married. Um, it's just like, don't you drag him back in here. Don't you manipulate him. Get the fuck out of my house. And he's generally played as, like I said, deceptively gentle. But um, when you watch the deleted scenes on uh, Silence of the Lambs, it comes out a little more as to how manipulative he is. Because, And they're all scenes from the book, which is really interesting. He, he says he's talking to Clarice outside. Uh, she's just been kicked off, you know, I think whatever it was. And she's like, but I need to go. Let me go on my own. I want to go find out, you know, I want to go to Ohio. And he's like, no, no, you don't need to do that. No. And kind of tests her until she just really insists on it. And he said, insists on it. And he says, there's a plane waiting for you. And I was like, you knew the whole time you were going to send her sitting there telling her, no, you knew, you knew. So, but, but they cut that out. And he, he is really manipulative, but also seems really fatherly on the surface. So they've kind of brought that more to the forefront with um, the show Crawford. But at the same time, like, I, I feel for the guy. I'm like, you're making a terrible mistake here. And you're totally kind of bullying Will. But you're going to feel so bad when you well, realize what you've done. Well, the funny part... Oh. Actually, one is they have this quote from him, which I think encapsulates the character. And it happened one of the earlier episodes when it's, you know, Will, Alana and Hannibal are in front of Jack and they're talking. I guess it had to do with with Abigail and whether or not they can interview her. And Alana has one opinion and Hannibal says another thing. And Jack Crawford goes, you know, what we have here is two different opinions and I'm going to pick the one that supports my agenda. Mm-hmm. That was kind he of blatant. Open, he blatantly says that. Yeah, I'm like, well, that that's was. his character right there. Right. Well, I mean, and the other I, thing. I, I have sympathy for him because he really is trying to do the right thing for the, the greatest number of people. And he wants to, he wants to catch the bad guys. So they kill less people. And in order to do that from his point of view, he has to make sacrifices and unfortunately for will the the sacrifices that jack has chosen to make is will's sanity and i mean i can from a philosophical standpoint it's really kind of interesting i want uh, there's out... a scene 
So there's just one thing that the show, and it might be the same scene you talk, you you might have wanted to talk about. Leo is there's a scene, the thing the show does so well, and this is not so much Crawford and Will as it is Crawford and Abigail, because despite the like that scene where he shows her Nicholas Boyd's body. Mm-hmm. And you just go, oh, cover the body, you asshole, right? But the funny thing is, he's always right about her. He's been right about her from the start. And even when we know that, we still feel like, why are you picking on poor little Abigail, you asshole? Yeah. I mean, the the really interesting thing about this show is that it gets you to sympathize with pretty much everybody. Even Hannibal to a point. Mm. Well, and they also gave Crawford the Miriam backstory. So you understand that not only is he driven, but somewhat irrationally, because he does feel so guilty about that. Mm-hmm. And, um... Sorry, I, I interrupted you talking about a scene. <laughs> I... They also have this really interesting dynamic where they sort of treat Will as a problem child. Because <laughs> that's the scene where all three of them are sitting in front of Crawford, and it's like... Will and his parents have been called up to the principal's office. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's not smart to, you know, a, a guy who thinks about killing for a living. And what Crawford then says is, you know what's really not smart? Turns to like and goes, you were standing there and you let those words come out of his mouth. Like, that's his dad or something. I was <laughs> like, he's not treating Will like he has any agency whatsoever. And I just, I love that he, I think he, he treats Will like a problem child who has to be coddled half the time. But the the rest of the time, I think he believes in him a little too much. I, not in a bad way, but like he says in, in front of the fire with the brandy, Will's genuine or genuine. You know, Will's, Will's genuine. He will always find himself. And I think he just has too much faith in Will being okay. And he can put him through anything he wants to. You know, he's um, overconfident, maybe, mm-hmm. because that suits his agenda to, oh, I have faith in Will. He can just do whatever. That's fine. While everybody else is kind of like, he's not doing so good. Can you, can you, but he doesn't want to see that. And so I think that's where that authority, it's like this echo chamber of, I have authority, so therefore I'm right. And because I'm always right, I have authority. Mm-hmm. We have a situation with him as well of throwing himself completely into his work because his home life with his wife who is dying and he in many ways really does not want to deal with that even though he says he wants to be there for her. And those scenes are really beautifully done if only for the extra heartbreaking element of having Bella Crawford be played by his real life wife. Mm-hmm. The Gina Torres who can do anything by the way. Oh that's that was pretty wonderful. Like that casting was particularly good in the scenes together. It's just so, so well done. And I like that they brought that storyline forward because in Red Dragon, she's totally okay. And I think Crawford says something like, you need, I forget who he's talking to, but he's like, oh, come over and have dinner with us sometime, you know, just to some other cop or something. And she seems fine, but then by Silence of the Lamb, she's got cancer. So they brought that story a lot forward. Again, Crawford's such an asshole at times, and I'm just sitting there through the recaps going, just stop, just stop, just shut up, just get out. You are bad and you should feel bad. But I totally understand why he's in this very irrational state of mind. I want to believe that I can put Will through anything and he'll be okay. I've got to catch these people. 
I've got to find out what happened to Miriam. I've got to avenge her. Mm-hmm. You, you totally understand. I have a question. Um, Clea, you might know this just because it might have come up in your research. Uh, there's a lot of side notes when these recaps are done, when we talk about the show, that have to do with who owns the characters. Like, oh, you know, they, for example, Gideon Abel was the original name in the Silence of the Land scripts because they weren't sure they could get the rights to the name Hannibal Lecter, right? I think and, it was technically Gideon Quinn is what it was in the script. Abel and they Gideon. named him able get in the show right and yeah. now we're, we're saying how oh well they might not have the rights to clarice so do you actually what what is going on with the rights situation who owns what i i don't know why this is the case um the dino de Laurentiis company did manhunter which is a version of red dragon in the mid 80s so they have the rights to anyone who originated in red dragon and Orion Pictures had the rights to Silence of the Lambs a few years later. I don't know why this is the case. Orion went out of uh, business. It went bankrupt. And now MGM owns their library. So, and at some point, MGM wanted to do uh, a Clarice series on Lifetime called Clarice. At the same time, they were developing this show, and that just kind of went away, and we never heard about it again, thank God. So, um, I, I don't know what's going on here. At this point, the De Laurentiis company has the rights to Will Graham, and MGM has the rights to Clarice. They have the rights to the Benjamin Raspell character, because he originated in Silence of the Lambs. They have the James Gum, Buffalo Bill character. So, any uh, until they work that out, and apparently they've got a death grip on it and they don't want to play ball. Um, any characters from that book that show up on Hannibal are going to be analogs with different names. And and Brian Fuller said if he has to have Shmurice Shmur- Starling, he, he will. He wants to, he said that, you know, Clarice and Hannibal are both better together and he definitely wants to have her. And I I don't know... If maybe because the Clarice series just turned into some kind of quicksand where they can't get the Clarice rights out and play ball, or if they're just like, no, we don't want to. I don't, I don't know what the situation there is, but that's the problem. So then Miriam Lass, is she in the book? Was she in the books? Uh-uh. No, no, she's a Clarice analog. They totally. Seems pretty obvious. Why do you think they did it in this early on in the show? I I can tell you exactly why they did it. Um, because I eventually theorized this, and then they basically confirmed it. The sixth episode is a big mishmash of stuff from Silence of the Lambs and mm-hmm. some homage to the movie, and a lot of lines taken from the book. And I was sitting there just having this fangirl freak out, where I was like. I can't believe you just went ahead and used that. Oh, fuck you. What are you doing? I'm so mad. I hate you. What is this? And so they go ahead and bring all this in and then basically blow it up. And it's like, that's how Will originally, he only meets Hannibal once Mm -hmm. in the Red Dragon backstory. He walks in, he sees, well, that's right. This is in the recap. Um, He sees the sketch and goes, oh my God, it's this guy. So they gave that to another character. So now it's like, all bets are off. You have no idea how he's going to figure out anything. Anything could happen. You don't even know. And then they have this 
Abel Gideon character, who is kind of this basically third-rate movie Hannibal Lecter type. And it's to the point where I almost kind of feel like in-universe he saw movies about brilliant and prison sociopaths, and so he's kind of acting out what he thinks he should look like to impress people. And then he's like, I don't, you know, we get to episode 11, he's like, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I'm supposed to be. It's like a memory of a picture I saw somewhere, and then I realized it didn't even happen to me. And so it's kind of a play on the way the show has to labor under the shadow of this very famous movie and this other portrayal. And... I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's kind of a malicious take that we're better than you. I don't think it's that, but I think they're kind of trying to exercise that ghost mm-hmm. and get out from under it and say, as much as we clearly love this series, and Brian Fuller even said they love to put in homages to the movies anywhere they can. They really do love them. I I think they're definitely trying to get out from under that and say, this is a different timeline. It's a different universe. You have no idea what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Who would be your dream cast to play Clarice or, you know, whatever her name happens to be in the show right now? I'm trying to think how old she would need to be. She turns 33. The actress or the character? The character turns 33 in the book Hannibal. Like mm-hmm. this happens, the, it happens right around her birthday, which is right around Christmas. I would not know this except that I had to reread and rewatch all of this. <laughs> when I was on a matter of taste. I swear to God, I was like, that's her birthday? I had no idea. I'd blocked it all out of my mind. Um, but that happens like seven years after the events of Silence of the Lambs, which in turn happens two years after the events of Red Dragon. And then they said the show takes place two years before Red Dragon. So... mid she, Early to mid-20s, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so by the time we cast her three, four years from now, I, I don't know what actress would be the right age. Chloe Moretz? I like her. She, huh. Could she do it? Like, could she be, would she be right for the role, do you guys think? Oh, I can see she? her doing it. I think she's got the range for it, anyway. She, I mean, she is really good. Um, yeah, I just, the, the math on that is so complicated. I, I tend to think it's going to be somebody we just totally don't know about or don't see coming. Like, I didn't know about Casey Roll, and she was an amazing Abigail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if they found some really great Canadian actress, since they're up there anyway, because I think Casey Roll's Canadian. If they yeah, found, yeah, if they kind of discovered somebody and brought her in. Well, so is Caroline uh, Devonna. She's Canadian. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so is Aaron Abrams. Bunch of poutine eaters. <laughs> I, oh, this is very spoilery, but I want to brag about one thing I noticed, and then I'm going to herd us into the music and costumes, because we have to squee about that. Uh, the very last episode, I think I saw um, a kind of throwaway line, which is supposed to point you to a clue that was supposed to tell you that Abigail was really in it with her father the whole time. And that is uh, when... I can't remember if it's actually Hannibal or Jack having the conversation with Will when they're saying, like, why Will is the copycat killer. And then you saw Marissa, and you couldn't help it, and she looked just like Abigail, like the right age, the right height, the right the right weight. And you probably asked yourself why the Minnesota, why the Minnesota Shrike didn't kill her himself. And that's 
and as I sat there, all I could think of, that was the clue. You were supposed to see Marissa and realize that uh, Garrett Jacob Hobbs could never get his daughter to lure in her friend. So she must oh. have been in on it. Hmm. I saw other clues pointing to that, but I kept insisting to myself that she didn't necessarily know about it because of some reaction she had when no one was around to see them. Like when she pulls the hair out of the pillow. But I thought, well, you know, it just means that she didn't know her father was using antlers and all of his decorating. That's that's the problem. I mean, <laughs> he, she didn't know that he was... Do, I mean, and I, I think that was an unstaged reaction when she said, oh, my God, he was feeding them mm-hmm. to us. Mm-hmm. You could argue she put that on for show, but I think she really didn't know. But I think all that means is that she helped him lure them, but didn't know what he did with stuff afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, OK, that doesn't preclude that. Fuck everybody. I had logicked myself into that. And I was like, why did I try to use logic with this show? Why did I do that? A murder God wizard bless. did it. A I murder mean, wizard I, did it. <laughs> I don't think that. Abigail was as good a or it's good or as practiced at keeping her reactions from showing as say Hannibal is because he is the master and that it's entirely possible that she either she knew and she has she had deluded herself into thinking no he is not using the antlers and all of the decorating or she had to keep the facade on even when no one was around because that was the only way she could keep it from slipping. You could look at it that way. Well, and there's a line in episode nine where she talks about being a sociopath versus being a survivor. And I think that was kind of really the clue. Except, except she has that one line the first time they bring her back to the house and she tells them uh, that, oh, my father believed in using all of the animal to honor it. So those, the remains of those girls are probably glue holding the pipes of the house together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I took as sarcasm at the time. Almost like she doesn't really think it's true. She's just being kind of sarcastic. Because that was kind of a shitty thing to say. Oh, no, that, that was cold. That was cold. <laughs> but I, I thought like she wouldn't have said it that sarcastically if she thought it were true. Kind of like... I wouldn't be giving that information away if I mm-hmm. thought it were true. Mm-hmm. What What's also so interesting is I realized around the time, um, episode nine, when he's like, you know, you can't admit it to yourself, but I've known it the whole time. I wondered when you would tell me. He didn't actually say I've known it the whole time. Mm-hmm. I suddenly just kind of went back and I went, you know what? I bet he figured it out as part of like a psychological profile. I bet he figured it out before he even was sitting by her hospital bed. That's why he was sitting there guarding her with his hand on her hand. And he knew the whole time. So if you go back, and I've, I've only rewatched the first four episodes on the DVD. I haven't gotten to the producer's cuts of the others yet. I can't wait to see what that was. You know, anytime he gives her some kind of look, I'm like, he knows. That's why he's looking at her like that. That's what he's thinking. Oh, my God. I think that moment in the episode when he slams Alana's head into the wall... That was probably the moment when, like, a breaking point where if you were a new viewer, you really realized that Hannibal is not any kind of anti-hero. Or, you know, well. you can't put him in the suspect. <laughs> because, really, like, up until then, you kind of intellectually know he's the killer, but he's you so charming, and he's so smooth, and he seems to have relationships with these people, right? Like, he seems to have... honest respect for Alana and at that point you think he has an honest interest in Will and it's 
how easy it is for him to just go slam, right? That's mm-hmm. when you realize, no, he doesn't. That's what's so scary to me is I think he does. I think he does have all of those honest, genuine relationships and is still willing to slam her head into a wall. It's just like, okay, she'll be fine. She'll yeah. be fine. It was like when he talks about Will's stroke. I said it was minor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had a minor stroke. I, I, you don't see boring. Seal bark to laugh at that point. Seal bark to laugh. And even Gideon's like, dude, you nuts. <laughs> well, and he looks so offended that Gideon would think poorly of him for this. <laughs> like, that is how much he cares about him. And he's like, I said it was minor. Like, what? I, I want to, um, to talk about now about basically the accoutrement. So set design and costume design and music. And also, oh my God, can we just say the most polite show on television? Everybody says, may I? And please, in like the most formal. It's fantastic. It's like Downton Abbey. <laughs> well, it is filmed in Canada. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> But um, what do you want to talk about first? Given how low the budget for this show actually is, it may be one of the most expensive looking shows on network. The color scheme, the homages to things like The Shining with the bathroom, the um, just the sheer intricacies of things like Hannibal's office. I'm amazed that they've done it on the budget that they have. You know, I'll be honest, the thing about these I don't know, this is both costumes and I guess cinematography, and I'll, I have a whole thing about just squeeing about the cinematography here is, for the first episode I actually had to kind of do a double take and remind, they, they did update this to 2013 because there's something about some of those costumes and sets where I wasn't quite sure if this was actually still in like the 80s or 90s where it originally was. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was about them that made me... I don't know. There's just something slightly retro. It's kind of the fabrics of the costumes, I think. They kind of remind me of like the late, maybe kind of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of there's there's a, a little flair to the costumes Especially Alana's wrap dresses, which oh, were yeah. very much a 70s thing. I And the patterns. I think maybe that's where that's coming from. And she's got all these kicky skirts and these tall boots. And, <sighs> and Beverly has the boots, too. And uh, I think maybe that's where that's coming from. I, I would agree. And just to say about cinematography, this is probably the show on TV. And I am so in love with the visuals of the show as I was watching it. Because it's so... I, I think I tweeted this to you guys where I couldn't come up with the word. It was I used textured and textural. And because a primetime show to me, they all tend to look very sleek. And this, of all shows, kind of looks like a feature film. It has yeah. very film-like, feature film-like qualities to it. It's just gorgeous, the cinematography here. Yeah. I think it helps that they actually got film people in to do stuff like the direction and cinematography. You have Guillermo Navarro, who did the cinematography for Pan's Labyrinth. You have David Slade, who did um, 30 Days of Night, Hard Candy. Uh, there are people who really know what they're doing, and it shows. Yeah, and I think it was the our summer blockbuster episode where you, Alina, were talking about how the some of the really exciting and original stuff is now happening on television and I agreed with you and I was thinking primarily about Hannibal mm-hmm. as being one of those shows that does the the original storytelling and the 
beautiful layered texture visuals and everything so well mm-hmm. music is really i think it plays a big part kind of almost deceptively because it isn't necessarily the first element you think of but from the classical accompaniment to hannibal like it, it really builds into that image right well and on the flip side of that which is the very non-melodic background sounds they said that they're they use a lot of sound that you can't hear through a tv speaker so and i i can confirm this if you can watch the dvds on your computer and with headphones on i would watch it on tv the night it aired and then in order to do the recap i would have to watch it while i was writing kind of skip back and forth two or three times with my headphones on on my ipad because that was the easiest way to screen cap and i'm telling you it was even knowing what was going to happen it was so much more unnerving because i could hear all of that sound and it's just oh my god it just ah the last episode with the the bull roar tornado siren from hell oh my god (laughs) oh my god well i guess i know what i'm doing when i'm flying to san diego next week My seatmates are going to hate me. (laughs) Actually, one of my favorite sound moments from this last, uh, in the very last episode, is Alana's grief kind of freak out in the car that was through, you know, sound accompaniment, but not actually her, sounds of her screaming, I thought was really effective. I just Mm -hmm. really love that little moment. I love the music they play at the end of the first episode. I can't remember if they use it again. But in, in the hospital room, I love that little piece of music. I would love to have an original score, you know, CD, you know, album on iTunes that they would let us have. <laughs> I wish they would. We'll put it out Play there. it over dinner. It's a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. The food. And... Oh. Let's talk about the food. What's going on there? <laughs> that's, that's the tornado siren. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Did you? I, I thought I saw a link, maybe of your Tumblr or your Life Journal, but I mean, they have kind of decorators and designers just for the food, don't they? They have the food, they, yes. food deck. Yeah, they have. And again, I just watched these extras. So um, they have Jose Andres, the, the chef, who comes up with. He gets so excited. He gets to read the script and they'll say, We're having the scene and this is the subtext and this is the plot of the show. What would be a good recipe for this? And he'll come up with a recipe and then they'll take it over to Janice Poon, the food stylist, who will then have to not make the recipe, but come up with something that looks like it that the actors can then eat, but also bearing in mind that it needs to be scary and suggest what it really is while also looking like what it's supposed to be and when you realize that i mean the stuff she's done is just amazing i was i would always go check her blog after every episode she did the most beautiful sketches Mm -hmm. and i would always uh try to link to those and they would talk about I mean, like, she's the one who would come up with, and we need to have a bird skull on the plate, and we need to have bones for vases when he takes veal cheek to Bedelia. And I just, I, Noel listened to the other podcast I was on this episode for the first time, and I just love how horrifying this is, so I have to tell everybody. The last thing Hannibal does when he's with Abigail 
is he's touching her, her face. Yep. And he takes her cheek between his thumb and forefinger very specifically because at the time I was like, why are you pinching her cheek? That's kind of weird. And that's <laughs> what he serves to Bedelia. <laughs> Veal cheek. Veal cheek. He's yep. like already thinking about it. Even as he's like, I love you and I, I think of my sister <laughs> and I'm so sorry I have to do this and you're really right. plump and tasty and this is going to be great. <laughs> How, how much did those food designers must have loved the dinner party episode? Oh my god, that was yeah. fabulous! Well, out of we will link to Janice Poon's blog um, because she is just so. That's amazing. It's great and, to watch like, people who really like their job doing things well. Yeah. And Mass Mickelson clearly loves his job because, as Brian Fuller has stated, he likes to drag out the eating scene so he can just eat all day. Yeah. <laughs> And oh, exact everybody else was. has a bucket by, <laughs> by oh, Mass Mickelson does not spit, he swallows. Yeah. Okay, so um, I have a neophyte question. The smelling thing. The Hannibal sense <laughs> of smell. Was that yeah. from the books or is that a new... Yeah, no, that's in the book. He's like a... the opposite of the killer from Perfume. He has this hilariously throwaway line in uh, Thomas Harris has in The Slants of the Lambs where after Hannibal's escaped and he's in a hotel and he says something like he found the waiter's watch leather offensive like it's that fine a sense of smell so that's he never meets Bella in the book so they just totally threw out he can smell cancer he can they made and encephalitis. that up. yeah they made that up. and all i could think of was those like you know those articles you see on like bbc technology science where they say dogs can smell cancer and etc self patients i can all i can think of is hannibal like a dog like nosing it's a thing maybe that's why will likes him who knows <sighs> <laughs> Did Will dognap one of his dogs? No, no. You can see if you look carefully at Winston's leash that it's frayed at the end. It's a rope. It's not it's even a, a rope. leash. Yeah, it's frayed. So Winston escaped. He did not dognap. Okay. Although I do like the idea of like Will and his minivan like cruising the streets with he had treats in his car. <laughs> like, <laughs> he, oh. Dog napping. He totally does that. <laughs> and at the end, when he's being taken away, Winston once again has a leash on him for whatever reason. He does dragging in the mud, and and he once again looks sad and and lonely. It was like bookending. Oh, Winston! Right. Thank God. Okay. Brian Fuller, bless your heart, because you know first. Here is Will. He is clearly not a terrible person because he has these adorable dogs who he takes care of. And he does the proper thing of introducing a new dog to the pack. So that was excellent. <laughs> and then at the end, Alana's like, I'm taking care of the dogs. Please don't worry about the dogs, which is Fuller saying, okay, during the hiatus, I don't want you all to be losing sleep over the fate of the dogs. <laughs> Alana's got him. It's fine. It's fine. It's okay. Worry about Will. The dogs are fine. I love the Winston Graham Twitter, by the way. I've, I don't run it. I actually know I, the girl who does has a separate Twitter account. So I, she is a not me person. But I love the Winston and, and how Winston and the dire Ravenstag would like talk to each other back and forth. And I, I love that. And I think what, what Winston said at the time was, 
you know, to Brian Fuller, you used me to <laughs> to break everybody's hearts. I admire that. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. And and Winston is played by a dog named Heidi. Aww. Who's the most beautiful dog? Who's the most beautiful dog and tolerates her flower crown so well? Aww. When when um Alana Bloom was saying how she's going to take care of the dogs and, and I was sitting there like that's a callback to when she wanted to come over and cuddle with them. Mm-hmm. And now I she gets with the dogs. I honestly thought Will slept with them when they have that first time they show that scene where the dogs are in all the different doggy beds and pillows. I was looking for Will in, in that. I thought <laughs> Left. Just sleep like five feet away from them. There, there is like the greatest fan art I've seen, and there's been a lot of really great fan art. Is a very sweet picture of all the dogs on Will's bed, and he's got his arm around Winston. Yeah. And the caption is that this can only happen on nights when he doesn't have nightmares. And, and the. The little one with the underbite. With the teeth. With the teeth. <laughs> is awake and watchful and everybody else is asleep. She hasn't. It, it's she. The dog's name is Zoe. I actually went and looked this up. Um, no, Brian Fuller tweeted pictures of each dog and, and introduced us to the uh, the real dog <laughs> one day. Um, she has a Twitter account called Underbite Graham. <laughs> Following. Hold on a second. And, oh my god, that's amazing. Have a sec. And the little bio says, Daddy won't buy me braces. <laughs> oh my god, this is adorable. But then there's the big white dog with the brown spot that's like always the one that like, you know, is out the window being like, oh my god, are you okay? Oh my god, you're dreaming about water. Are you okay? You know, and, and Winston follows him down. The- they take care of him. <laughs> somebody to take care of him. The fact that Will has so many dogs reminds me so much of Brian Fuller's other show, Pushing Daisies, where there is this loner character with a gift mm-hmm. slash curse whose best friend is a dog Dickie. and has to deal with everyone trying to get in his way. And he can't touch his dog, so he has the fake hand to scratch him with. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, Brian Fuller, and this is something a lot of showrunners do, where they cast um, actors they worked with before if they need a role filled. So obviously, uh, Caroline uh, Devernal was in Wonder Falls. But uh, Ellen Muth, right? I'm getting the name right? Yep. Yes. Uh, who was... And he did this thing with the name. So Ellen Muth played Georgia Lass in Dead Like Me. Now, they already had given the last name last to Miriam on Hannibal, so instead she's Georgia Maytan, which is German for a young girl. Mm-hmm. And Miriam Lass, her full name is Miriam Regina Lass. Right. Regina, short for Reggie. And Gretchen Speck uh, nearly got turned into mushrooms from Wonderfalls. I just want to say that... that- Georgia Maiton, uh, Ellen Luth, Georgia Maiton, it's probably the one thing on the show that, honest to God, creeped me out. Not her specifically, but in the last episode, her and Will's nightmares. Mm-hmm. When they're having her do the natural movement. That is the part where I was like, I oh. hate that. I hate it when they do that with the, the creepy crawly bug sound in the bag. I'm like, no, 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 you stop that. That was the part of the show that got to me a little bit, because, yeah. See, and I had to watch all of this two and three times, and I was like, oh, God, meat wings. Can we not have the meat wings again? Oh, Why yeah, that one was, ugh. The close-up and the, oh, Jesus. 
But actually, Georgia, how fast did her hair go from dead, listless, and black to shining gold? How long was she in that oxygen chamber? Maybe it was like mud and they washed her hair. I I don't know. I I feel like that was a deliberate lighting choice as well, with her being in this like glass sort of cylinder lit up to be somewhat more angelic and then boom. Mm-hmm. Somebody pointed out it was like a Snow White glass casket kind of thing, and mm-hmm. like oh, a yeah. fairy tale princess kind of thing, and and you know Snow White, yes, it's Snow White, is offered corset lacings and, and a comb. comb. That's right. And, an mm-hmm. and they pointed this out in in the comments one of my recaps, and I was just like, "That's clever." Oh Jesus! How do they even write the show? <laughs> Congratulations on your show. You know, <laughs> right. How do you even do this? How how do you keep all of this in your head? Like it's. Ugh. Um, I have. I was gonna say I have a fairly good memory, but that's a lie. I have a very spotty memory. I can either remember tons of stuff, or I can't remember yeah. how to math. Like yeah. it's it's very spotty. I have an Evernote document where I squirrel things away for uh, future recaps, and um, I put various tweets are there and there's a lot of I end up usually not even using all the stuff I would like to put in because it just gets you know it just drags it down it's just so much stuff but you have to put in the Aaron Abrams treat tweets that are so amazing where he keeps talking about you know like seduction mode activated you know closer (laughs) I'd have the notebook DVD you know, to get with Beverly, I, you know, I invited you over to talk about dead skin. Will's the worst, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And you have to have the Brian Fuller tweets that are all the information. Because I don't know shit about classical music. I do not know the first thing. So anything I find out about it comes from him telling us what it is. And then me going to Wikipedia and being like, okay, grad school activate. Look for meaning. Okay, what's this about? Oh, my God. <laughs> But yeah, when you write it down, I mean, this is an exam studying technique. Once you've written it down and typed it out, you're going to remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much more so than if you just saw it in passing. Mm-hmm. And if you watch it three times, you're you're going to see, yeah. you know, it's going to get... This is how I could quote from other things I recapped that we will not speak of. I could quote <laughs> from memory for a good couple of years because once you've written it out, you're going to remember it. Mm-hmm. I stopped myself just in time. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, so you said this is about two years before Red Dragon. That's that what they rifle? said on the extras. Like I saw that just this morning. It's mm-hmm. about two years before. And Red Dragon in it in in Red Dragon. Do they mention how long it's been since Will caught Hannibal? Two years. Okay, so this is just about the, the next season we're going to go into catch the catching of Hannibal, I guess? Um, I believe the plan is, like, Fuller said that this this first season was the, uh, the bromance, and next season is the breakup, and the third season is supposed to be Hannibal's Trial? Am I, I, I would adore that. Um, well, I think like Will is even going to have a trial this season, but I think it's going to be, I don't think it's going to take up the whole season. So I don't know that his trial would take up the entire season. I I don't know. That is what my soul craves. I want to see like all of the articles 
and all of the TV news and everybody talking about it on Twitter endless. Can you imagine the day they capture him? <laughs> like when you've seen news events unfold on Twitter and everybody retweeting things that turn out to be totally wrong. And oh my God, don't look at these pictures. They're so graphic. And oh my God, CNN fucked it up. And I mean, can you imagine that happening in this universe? Like my soul oh my God. this. All I want is like, the reaction of all the people who've had dinner at his house. Yes. No, the, I want the reaction of them all going, it fucking rhymes. Yes. A <laughs> yes. whole episode oh of Oh my Jim- god, I'm in a show called Hannibal. Fuck. <laughs> Do you think they're gonna, there's gonna be a Molly in the show, or do you think they're, you know, it's kind of like you said, they're kind of in their own universe. We all love Alana. I think Brian, there to be a Molly. Brian I Fuller think the only way that Will copes is to completely disconnect himself from everyone and that situation and how much it damaged him. And to get with Alana in that situation, I think, would still be far too hard. And it would also be very difficult for her. Because as she's mentioned before, she does need some element of stability, and I don't think that that would ever be possible between her and Will. So I need a Molly. And also because yeah. I really like Molly. I think she's just an extremely underrated character. I love how much she clearly hates Jack. I love the stability. <laughs> and then I don't like what happens at the end, but until that point. Well, and they, they said they wanted to bring in Molly. And I could see Will and Alana having this sort of doomed relationship. This is assuming Alana makes it out alive. Uh-huh. Please. <laughs> oh, oh my God, sweet Jesus. Alana is not for eating. You, you get away <laughs> from her. Do not touch her. I will come after you um, and your fictional necktie. I will come after you. Um, so that's not a threat against Brian Fuller. Trust me. Um, I, I could see them finding out all the stuff they ate and just not even being able to look each other in the eye again. And just being like, we, we must never talk about this. And so, but you know, it's, it's suggested at the end of the red dragon book, not the movies that his marriage is just done. Mm-hmm. And Molly just well, can't take it anymore. And Alana could come back in at that point. But that's mentioned in Silence of the Lambs. And Crawford mentioned specifically that Will Graham has a face like Picasso and he's now a lonely drunk in Florida. Which yeah, I will forever slightly hate Thomas Harris for. Yeah, I don't know that this fans of the show could put up with that. Well, if the show gets the full seven season palooza that um, David Slade and Brian Fuller have been talking about, seven, se- season seven takes place after the book Hannibal with Will going after Clarice and Hannibal in Argentina. Mm -hmm. Which would be amazing, by the way. Mm -hmm. I want Ardelia in on this. Oh, I want this so bad. I I could see there being a point after Red Dragon where Will does end up, you know, trademark, a drunk in Florida with a face that's hard to look at, you know. But then they come get him again and... Mm-hmm. He's brought, you know, Beverly goes and gets him, you know, and so <laughs> right. he he is brought back into the fold. But I could see, because Brian Fuller doesn't pull the punches, he will he will make it as bad as possible and drink your tears and laugh at your pain. And I love that. I love that he's. He will Mason Verger yeah. the hell out of your feelings. Oh, God. <laughs> oh speaking of blah. season two, blah. Yeah. I can't deal with Mason Verger. I just. Can't. I will deal so hard as, with Mason Verger if Tumblr. Lee Pace takes that role. Like, Lee Pace has to be on the show. Pilot for another TV show, but hey, Raul Esparza is doing another TV show, and he still comes over to 
um, Canada to have his guts taken out, so I'm okay with that. Exactly. It's pedophilia. I can't deal with it. You know what? Mm-hmm. Brian Fuller has promised us that at some point there's going to be a scene and Lee Pace is going to find out what he's eating, shrug, and continue. He promised us <laughs> this. He promises the Pushing oh. Daisies fans we must have this. <laughs> Well, the character that would make sense for him to do that with would be Mason Verger. So, yeah. I also really want to deal with all of the Lord of the all of the Hobbit fan girls having to deal with him playing a pedophile. God, I can't, I can't even with him. I love how in the movie Hannibal, Clarice is just like, you know, Julianne Moore is just like, I'm not here for this. Just stop. <laughs> I'm not. I'm 100% not here for this. Just stop. <laughs> and also, apparently, they've they're promising David Tennant. For reasons, because he was like one of their top three choices for Hannibal, and I, which I, that astonishes me. I don't see how that was possible. Okay, I don't think of him when I'm mm, No, if you remember him as Moody, if you remember him in the Harry Potter movies when he's actually uh, Crouch, Barty Crouch Jr. He seemed incredibly hammy to me at that point. But is it, doesn't that fit with what you say about kind of the original Anthony Hopkins? See, I will argue this. I will go to the mat arguing this. The Anthony Hopkins, um, certainly the first movie he did, it's incredibly subtle if you realize what he's doing and the way that he's actually performing this character because that's all he's got. He can't, you know, physically get out and chase anybody down. And he he can only intimidate people. Mm -hmm. And so if you kind of read between the lines, like there's a point when he turns away from Clarice to listen to her story of how her father died. And he's... He's not performing for her at that point. He just turns away so he can sort of think about it to himself. And, I mean, if you've ever seen Remains of the Day, that is subtle as fuck. I can't even Mm -hmm. tell you. That is, like, the the most subtle acting I may have ever seen in my life. He can do it. And so if you know to look for that, there's also a very uh, strange little deleted scene, which, again, I, I watched recently, or I wouldn't remember this. There's the scene where Chilton is listening to Lecter talking about uh, Buffalo Bill and this is what his test will look like with the house and the tree and he's, you know, a far more terrifying pathology. They have an alternate take of it where you watch him say this. And he talks about... God, I've I've recited this before and I can't remember what it is. He talks he hates who he is. He hates his own identity and he wants to be reborn. And there's like tears in his eyes. It's very subtle. It reminded me a lot of the beginning of Sorbet. And I was like, what's going on there? They didn't put that in the movie at all. That would totally give you a different perspective on the character. If you had any idea he had that kind of emotion in him. That is mm-hmm. super interesting. So I, I think this is actually not incompatible with the Mass Mickelson performance because once you put him in a prison and he can't hunt you down on a dark country road, you know, what does he have left? He can't, you know, punch you in the throat. What's he got left? Is he going to be a little more theatrical? I don't know. I mean, I know they specifically want to stay away from copying that performance, but I think you could see something a little closer to that in a different circumstance. So, yeah, I, I will go to the mat on that one. Now, the Red Dragon performance, I just, uh, uh, you're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun, but you're on your own. 
Um, as a newbie, what do we expect from season two? What kind of characters do you think they'll add in season two? Is there anybody that's due to come in? Well, Cynthia Nixon is going to be playing the... Is it a prosecutor or someone who works for the FBI? It's the uh, kind of oversight committee that's like, Crawford, what the fuck was that? <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be yeah. awesome. Uh, Martin Donovan is going to be a psychiatrist, psychologist who evaluates Crawford. Uh, Crawford. There's Crawford, yeah. Mm. Everybody um, has a psychiatrist on the show. It's... Well, and to kind of be like, are are you in fact, you know, fit to to lead this mm-hmm. department? Because what the hell happened? Uh, they've got somebody to play Will's lawyer. I forget who. Uh, I don't think it was a name that rang a bell with me. But apparently he's he's in it for the exposure and the publicity. So I'm thinking he's going to get it pretty quickly. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> I enjoy this. Uh, Bedelia ought to be coming back. Uh, Chilton's coming back. He did make it out. They might bring Gideon back. They said he's not dead. Even though well, he was Frank shot. Frank did see he was going to come back, didn't he? Because he's not dead. I, and also, I, I really want to see those two fuck each other over. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you ended the sentence that way. I, I, was, hoping, I was hoping it was going to keep going. Uh, Martin De Laurentiis said that he, he, wasn't, he wasn't dead. They could bring him back. Um, they said they were going to bring Mason Verger, Verger in already. Which, again, was very upsetting to me. They want David Tennant to play a killer. Oh, they might bring in Hannibal's uncle if they can get David Bowie. But, yeah, I just Make tweeted, it happen. Sacrifice all the avocados. <laughs> I don't know if avocados are the right thing for now. I did just send Brian Fuller a tweet asking, so so what's, what's the word on David Bowie? If Hannibal's want to know, please. <laughs> <laughs> I just, that's when we hadn't heard that the show was renewed yet, and they you know, Brian Fuller said, that's our dream casting. We want to get David Bowie. And I was like, you can't do this to me. You can't tell me this, that this could happen and then take it away from me. Take my money. I will pay. Take it. Don't do this to me. And then they renewed it. So they renewed it. And they said that they've approached him and nothing has been heard on that front since. What cracked me up? I thought this was adorable. Apparently they, they asked, Mass Mickelson about it, and he was like totally jazz. He was like, "I would love that," <laughs> you know. I'm such a fan. I, he was saying that he he doesn't like to, um, like he, he didn't understand the concept of, of being friends with people only online. He was like, "I already have too many friends that I don't talk to." <laughs> I would put I would put his name in my phone. I would I would put him. I, I would call him. <laughs> it was just adorable. I, it's that enthusiasm. Like I remember Lawrence Fishburne apparently said that he specifically wanted to play Crawford because he did his first movie, which I guess was Apocalypse Now, and he was like 17 or something. And he did it with Scott Glenn and really admired him and wanted to play the same character and was just super excited about it. And I just I just adored that everybody in this is like, oh, let me do it, please let me do it. <laughs> it's a true labor of love. It is. It's a weirdly it's... adorable show about cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was this very lovely show about a girl and her two dads, and they sometimes <laughs> eat people. What the fuck am I watching? <laughs> the thing I'm excited for is if they're bringing in Mason Verger, that means they're going to bring in Mason's sister, Margot, who was completely cut out of the film Hannibal, and who I much prefer to Mason. 
Margot is a lesbian bodybuilder who is hanging around with her brother in order to get him to give his sperm to her girlfriend so that they can inherit all of his money when he dies. And in spoiler alert, she gets rid of him involving an electric eel and a cattle prod. Did we mention yeah. that the book Hannibal is weird? Dot Jones. <laughs> very weird. Dot Jones. Dot Jones. They could cast Dot Jones. I don't know who that is. I'm Googling. She's ugly. That sounds good. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> no, people who watch will know. Sure. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I know. I, I, I see your point. I think that's kind of an obvious choice. Yeah, that's true. I think mostly it was a really good idea to leave her out of the movie considering because I don't there think there was it way too much going on in that movie for them yeah. to even approach putting in yeah Marvel. I just oh Jesus yeah look we already brought in the killer pigs we can't bring in the bloody electric eel as well I think the eel is in the movie it's just in the background <laughs> that that happened a brief I moment just... of subtlety from Ridley Scott in the film <laughs> God bless. I, I I love that it's just this nutty Ridley Scott movie. I when I remembered that he was the one who did this, suddenly explained a lot about Prometheus to me. <laughs> I understood so much about both of these movies that I was like, yeah, he did both of those. Yeah. God bless. The stuff in that movie that's good is really good. The stuff in the movie that isn't is just pure undiluted what the fuck it's you have to see it for yourself and yeah <laughs> it's an experience that's one way to put it only movie i've ever been in where people walked out of the theater <laughs> <laughs> only movie i can get why if that entire yeah. movie had just been hannibal causing havoc in florence it would have been amazing while clarice sort of chases around that would I, that would have been brilliant that's what the sequel should have been instead of I, this I think it this. should have been Clarice going to Florence to find him. Because to me, any anything that happened with eating somebody at a dinner table kind of would have made sense to me in Florence. Just because that seemed to have such a magical sort of draw for him. It's almost like that's his world. Once you walk into this universe's version of Florence, I could buy almost anything happening. And you're going to his place now. So if she had gone rogue and gone after him and we just, I, I guess we would leave Krendler out of it. I don't know. Just, if we had just left all that, you know what? Forget Verger and the pigs. I don't even care. Just the Florence stuff. That, that was where Thomas Harris's heart really seemed to be. <laughs> so Cleo, because you weren't with us last episode, do you have feelings about Hannibal not being in any of the Emmy categories? Kill them all. <laughs> Get out the Rolodex. Oh I my want god! Business cards. I want all of them. The Rolodex of recipes is probably my favorite thing on the uh, show. That's my favorite episode. Yeah. That entire dinner party episode where he's like, "Okay, okay, they want a party. I have to cook. Who do I have?" And it's just, it's amazing. Let's go shopping. It's amazing. Okay, but I have a logistic question. If does he just kill as the Chesapeake Ripper, or does he also quietly kill just to replenish the stock of food? I think both. I think both. I think he has to quietly kill just to. Re I mean, based on all of the food that was served throughout the entire series season. <laughs> He only takes particular organs from the Chesapeake Ripper victims and then displays them. And then they talk about how he 
he's hot right now and he'll kill a few people and then go quiet. And I'm like, he didn't go on a people yeah. diet for the two years between murders, please. Yeah, you just <laughs> never found those bodies because he didn't. And his herb garden, you ain't never going to find him. Yeah. He made jello out of those people, whatever. Ooh. And that's my favorite, my favorite, the dessert, the grape jello. Oh my god. This is kind of a um a theory I have and I want to see if I get this right because one of the things they're they're going to face with this um with this adaptation being set in the now is that now Wikipedia tells me that the original Hannibal's kind of issues led back to an experience in World War II as a child. <laughs> Obviously, Matt Dixon was not a child in World War II. Fucking Nazis. Whatever. So if there's things, so and I was thinking of what conflicts he'd be the right age, kind of. And I was thinking Serbia, like Bosnia. Is that where could he be from there, and that could be it? I I don't know if they're gonna go with that particular oh hey we were starving and then you got served your sister I mean obviously Misha is a thing yeah you can't be a thing because it's a boy's name sorry sorry did I get Russian for a second there yes you did (laughs) it's not even a name it's a I've done I've done really I'm I'm sorry really okay for whatever reason Misha is a thing I I don't know I also wouldn't mind horribly if they're just like no this is he just eats people because why not they kind of suggested this on on the extras um which were recorded the interviews were done after the season was over because they talked about how the guy who produced the extras had like six weeks to do all of it and had to do it very quickly and they grabbed them for the first and last episode commentaries literally before the Comic-Con panel started, and they literally had to run across, you know, the building complex to get to the panel. And um, so it was, all of this is is fairly uh, current information. They said they didn't really want to deal with that backstory, and clearly it can involve Nazis now. That's just... Mm-hmm. Thank God that's just off the table. Obviously, his sister is a thing. Maybe they'll give her a different name that is a girl name. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> it could happen. I don't know. Um, I'm sorry. But his, his sister you is a thing. You are not. No. Clearly, clearly, his uncle is a thing because they're talking about having him on. And they said, you kind of don't want to know what makes him do what he does, which suggests to me that maybe they won't give him a quote unquote origin story we'll just hear about how it was referred to that he was an orphan his parents died when he was young until his uncle took him in this was his school in paris which i noticed paris is mentioned like more than once he's sketching i think the eiffel tower in the episode where will comes in and says abigail killed nicholas boyle did you know and they haven't mentioned Italy at all. So I'm kind of wondering if they're moving towards, like, Paris being his big thing. I can't quite tell. But, uh, yeah. they can hire French-Canadian actors, I guess, easier than Italian <laughs> actors. And then they can, they can go to Montreal or Quebec City and fake being it in It's easier to get tax breaks or whatever to film in Paris if they need to. Yeah. That's true. Then Florence. That's true. 
I just but, enjoy the fact that they haven't actually said where Hannibal's from, so everyone can just be like, well, he's ambiguously European on some aspect. <laughs> yeah. That was the issue my dad had when he watched the first episode. He says, I'm sorry, I couldn't understand a word he was saying for the first 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, to be honest, I had a, a little bit of a problem sometimes. I did for the first few episodes. I don't know if I got used to his voice or if he got used to the character. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was much easier with headphones in, though. So I wonder if it was the sound mixing mm-hmm. in a weird way that I could totally understand. But I always put the captions on. And, and it's not like I don't necessarily blame Mads Mikkelsen for not, I don't know, enunciating better. Because there's also Hannibal has a very particular way of speaking that's supposed to be, I guess, soothing. Like this professional, psychiatric low-pitched, mm-hmm. you know, voice. Which Bedelia so. has. I love that Bedelia kind of has it, too, and you're like, I think he kind of got that from her. I think you're right. I mean, I... We don't know what Bedelia's deal is, but I still maintain my original interpretation that she gives him notes on his person suit. <laughs> I think he studies her. I don't know that she specifically is like, you need to, but what was that moment where he says, I wanted to solve Will, and she's like, you wanted to save him. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Save him. <laughs> and he's like, right, right. Yes. Right, right. Got it. Sorry. But uh, my favorite moment between them when he said, you know, his madness is like oil in the water, and she's like, oil is valuable. Do you find his madness precious to you? <laughs> You're I loved that last episode she was in just because you you can tell what a great job he's done in terms of the physicality that like all he does is walk back and forth in front of her windows the way a normal person, you know, might, but we're watching this going, all oh, fuck shit's about to go down. He's moving. He's moving like a human being. All oh, fuck. She's he's like out. a shark. He yeah. yeah. He was pacing back and forth like a, a lion or a kind really of cranky tiger bounced on his feet and started picking at a chair and I'm like oh my god don't kill her don't kill her (laughs) and then there was some line like right after that where (laughs) like a fanfic broke out because he said something like when the pressures of my personal and professional relationships with Lil Graham grow too great I will find a way to relieve them and I was like whoa okay (laughs) thanks Brian thanks (laughs) I love how he's so clearly in with the entire fangirl element of the show and is happy to play it up to the nines. Yeah. <laughs> Here is a man who knows how to play the fandom game. Yep. Oh my god, that thing with the ladder. Uh-huh. That little swoon against <laughs> the ladder. What even was that? Which the, t- which the NBC Tumblr page immediately turned into a happily repeating gif. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they were like, you don't think we know about Hanagram? I mean, they, they name-checked. We treat you good. We treat you good, ladies and gentlemen. ladies <laughs> Well, and there was something recent where Brian Fuller said that he realized, somewhat to their surprise, that much of their audience, their target audience, is, quote-unquote, well-read young women. And Mm -hmm. those are the people who show up at the panels, and those are the people who come up to him with the flower crowns. And I I, I love that he has realized this, where so many shows, they just assume they've got to pitch it towards uh men and there was actually kind of a kerfuffle last week because uh they put out a dracula teaser that is jonathan reese myers writhing in a sea of literally like a million Women. women in modern underwear in modern underwear yeah and i was like that is totally pitched at guys 
to be like, no, we know the women will watch the show anyway. Come on, we need you to watch the show. And I'm, women on Tumblr were so pissed off. They were like, I don't even want to watch it now. I don't want to watch it at all now, if this is what they're going to do. They literally said, multiple people I saw in the reblogs, I'm disgusted, I don't even want to watch this now. Yeah. Because they went after an audience that might or might not give a shit and offended the people that did. Mm -hmm. Who who would, and such a devoted audience if they could get them. Yeah, I think what, certainly what, like, the old guard of TV advertising doesn't seem to realize is that fandom is primarily run by women. And fandom... The, Unless the it's ones... My Little Pony. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's primarily Shut run by the, the women they need. The, the, the key demographic for every advertiser is 18 to 35. There is your, your fandom sort of general mold right there. Mm-hmm. And even, oh, this is something Brian Fuller is very good at. Here's a man who's made several cult TV shows that have never had a huge audience, but the audience that they have are dedicated. They will watch the episodes, they will watch the repeats, they'll buy the DVDs, they'll go to the panels in costume, mm-hmm. they will DVR it, they will tell all their friends to go on Hulu and watch it. Um, They'll talk to their friends in different countries where the show is showing, because this show is currently in 80 countries around the world, which is why it got a second season. Mm-hmm. I think we're at a point now where that devotion actually helps, whereas before it was like, well, it's great that the women who do watch the show watch it, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But that doesn't help us. But now that we have this sort of global medium for conversation it actually does take on a viral quality um i was talking about sleepy hollow and somebody said yeah, i want to be one of the cool kids and watch it i should i start watching it i mean there is this sense of there is a global conversation and you don't want to be left out of it i think mm-hmm. twitter is like single-handedly going to save tv watching appointment tv watching as opposed to just eh, we'll get around to it mm-hmm. no everybody wants to be on twitter and they want to be part of that conversation the night it airs now it's the life brought tweets. that back yeah. yeah it's it's brought that back and um i think you know not only are, are women so key to this but i will run this bella lugosi quote into the ground because i think it's so true um it is women who love horror gloat over it feed on it are nourished by it shudder and cling and cry out and come back for more Mm -hmm. so i think he was very (laughs) smart to realize women are the audience that we need here and he was the one without even quite knowing that yet who was like we need more female energy on this show i need to have more women characters right and he was also the one who said from the from the outset we're not going to rape women on this show yeah. And that's a pretty big deal for him to say that, given what goes on in the books. Mm-hmm. I mean, women don't come out of those books in terms of victims of being entirely, you know, mm-hmm. in whole. Yeah. And the, given the reputation I mean, of horror tends to have for women, you know, running naked through the woods, being chased by a madman with a knife, for him to just come out and say, no, that's not fun. That's not what this show is about. We're not going to do that. It shouldn't be as big a deal as it is. But then you remember what happened this week with Ryan Murphy in American Horror Story, which featured a gang rape. Mm-hmm. I I thought let let's let the first Coven episode air and I'll see what people think and then I'll decide if I want to watch it and all I heard afterwards was well that was unexpectedly rapey and I went I love Angela Bassett but I don't think I'm here for this I don't think I am thanks mm-hmm. so I mean it it does make a difference and I don't know how they're going to handle the Red Dragon 
you know, main villain, because I, I don't know if they're saying we're going to work with what's in the books as sensitively as possible, but it is there. We are just not going to introduce more rape, or if they're literally like, we're doing something different with that character. I, I don't know. I think that, I mean, serial killers in general, serial murders have a sexual rapey element to them. That's just sort of the nature of the beast. And the fact that they've stayed away from that element so far makes me feel pretty, it feels weird to say pretty good about how serial murder is going to go down, but I'm going to go with it. Um, I feel I feel pretty confident in that if there's any way possible to just take that element out and put it somewhere else, they'll go with well, it. Well, my understanding is that, because I went through that period I think everybody goes through when you're about 13 years old, where suddenly you want to read mm-hmm. about every grim, dark thing you can get your hands on. My understanding is that a lot of serial murder is driven by sort of a messed up sense of sexuality where it often takes the place of sexuality and, and you know, a very, I'm not saying this right, but, um, and, and there are a lot of murder rapist types, but at the same time, you could easily say he is taking out this unhealthy sexual frustration pathology in a, not literally rapey way. Yeah. I could also I mean, even even if a victim is not necessarily raped, there's usually ejaculate involved somehow. We can also say I have a this. master's degree in criminal justice, I know things. <laughs> that there's a way to do this that has been done to death before where it's exploitative and I think we can trust the show not to be exploitative. Yeah. Please see well, not to be just completely doofy about this, but, you know, it's like they say, first principles, what does he do? The main, the, the thing that really sets Will on the trail of this guy is that, number one, he bites, and number two, gouges out the eyes and puts in pieces of mirror. Mm-hmm. And that's how they realize, oh, okay, we need to look, that and the bite, we need to look for somebody with this facial issue. And so... You could probably leave out the more graphic sexual elements and focus on those aspects. Yeah. Because that's what you need in order to solve the case. And that's the personality of the Mm -hmm. murder, really. And I read something really interesting, and I wish I could remember who said it. It's I linked it in one of the recaps, one of the later ones. Um, What's so interesting about how beautiful the tableau are, is that you have to see it through the eyes of the killer and it, it should be uncomfortable for you to say this is why they wanted to do that this is I'll, I'll give you the link so you can put it in the show notes when I remember who it is um, it would be like you know you look at the murder totem pole and you feel horror but a serial killer would look at that and see beauty the way they would look at a great sculpture and they wouldn't mourn the damage to the block of marble they would see beauty. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, and, and it should make you uncomfortable, but at the same time, Brian Fuller also said he wanted there to be a lot of gore. This is, I think, on the commentary for the first episode. When you see the, the blood, you know, just spurting out in that very first scene 
at the Marlowe's house because he didn't, they didn't want it to be like a video game where you just put bullets in people and keep moving. It's mm-hmm. like, this is the human cost of violence. It needs to be messy. It needs to make you uncomfortable. And you need to remember that this is what's happening to somebody. There's a price to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that kind of feeds into what what Fuller did with Hannibal is the character is you made him kind of you know this nice cuddly cannibal guy. He, I mean, he had okay, sure he eats people sometimes, but they're rude and they're mean. And oh, what the fuck you're gaslighting, you little shit! My favorite reaction from your recaps, Cleo, was, uh, and it was to the gaslight, to the "Don't you lie to me" scene where you call, where he tells Will, "There's nobody there." You just go, "You unmitigated fuck." <laughs> Fucker, I think specifically. Yeah, I think it was that, and I called him a clock faker at one point. <laughs> that made me really angry. That made me so angry. I knew it was coming, and I was like, "You're, you're gonna pretend he didn't." Oh, you. Yeah. It was the, the one guy I didn't get was, you know, the surgeon, Sutcliffe, Sutcliffe was the name, mm-hmm. the surgeon who who was in cahoots with Hannibal to pretend Will wasn't, didn't have encephalitis because they, and the way Hannibal manipulated him into it, and he said, like, imagine the opportunity to study the disease. And it's kind of like, imagine the professional accolades. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, how are you going to publish by admitting that you lied to a patient? Are you going to receive those accolades, you know, once the medical college has taken away your license to practice and you are in jail? And I don't know if it's not necessarily a plot hole. It could just be like, well, this is how good Hannibal is at convincing people. They can believe that. Yeah, they can totally get away with professional malpractice. Well, when he says you wouldn't you wouldn't see it unless you knew what you were looking for. Maybe they could pretend they didn't know what they were looking for and be like, oh, we had no idea what was wrong with this guy, so we just sat there and we watched his symptoms develop, and then finally we realized it was encephalitis. Okay, whatever. Mm. I mean, maybe they could fake it that way. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just love that look that, you know, he says, I, I want to give you some more tests, Will, and just, you know, psychological tests, and Will kind of goes, you know, you need to publish this posthumously would you and and he says something one of them says something your, like your death your or death mine, or mine. Yeah. and hannibal gives him this look like oh <laughs> are we thinking about that already <laughs> oh don't want my toy to break what i love about this show is like y- you can't just have it on in the background and do something else Half the plot is the way these people look at each other, but mm-hmm. don't notice they're looking at each other. And, like, there's that whole thing where Will is so excited because he's like, I feel good now. I feel so much better. I'm taking Abigail to Minnesota. And it's like, what the hell is wrong with you? And and Hannah just kind of rolls his eyes like, well, fuck. <laughs> well, now I got to kill her. Thanks. And you can totally read on his face that that's what he's thinking. You can totally see it. Yeah. And like y'all said, it's believable that nobody else, that Will doesn't notice that that's mm-hmm. what he did. Yep. <sighs> so, yeah, that was Hannibal. And I just want to say that in conclusion, in case people are listening to this who are also not fans, maybe they, don't, they didn't care about being spoiled, but as basic, as a spoiled but otherwise untouched by this fandom viewer of the show, I think it was great. It was really easy. Like it, I'm 
from what I can see other people saying, like, they had a lot of the in-jokes, but they didn't, you know, I didn't feel like I was missing things. And I certainly felt like I got in- enough of the nods and, and the symbology is so rich that's, that you there's also, like, just general symbology that you get. So it's beautiful. It's really well done. I'm, I'm, I'm glad this podcast made me watch it because <laughs> unlike other ungrateful people who didn't like pushing daisies... Oh! <laughs> <laughs> You knew she was going to bring that up. You knew it. I really <laughs> wish she'd stop because it's making me hate it more. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, at this point, what do I have to lose? You hate it already, so. I hate it because you keep bringing it up. <laughs> You've got to admit, it's great fun to watch all of these happy, happy people in Pushing Daisy's turn up in Hannibal and just be awful, miserable people. Well, I do. I do. Vivian! Vivian! It made me clap so hard. <laughs> She's going to be so sad when she finds out what was in that dinner table. I think she enjoyed the party regardless. She seemed like the kind of woman to speak. She's it was for the She's the social scene. I, I will give it this, that Hannibal, as a show, makes perfect sense for Brian Fuller. Because Pushing Daisies is a deeply fucked up show. Deeply, deeply fucked up. I mean, in many ways, very... You know, extremely depressing and very dark, and then you turn around and you turn the color saturation down, and you get Hannibal. Pushing Daisies is very much a show about all of these people whom you love who got away with murder, and you just keep hoping that they keep on getting away with it. <laughs> well, when it was um, first announced that Brian Fuller was doing the show, I did sort of go, "Wait, really? The Pushing Daisies guy?" And then the more you think about it, it's like this is a man who is weirdly, weirdly obsessed with extremely creative, disturbing, beautiful death. And it actually makes a whole lot of sense. But if you look at Dead Like Me, which is about a group of Grim Reapers, even look at his pilot he did for the Monsters remake, which is very much in the same sensibility as um, Pushing Daisies in terms of just really, really messed up characters doing weird things that you can't help but love them. Set to beautiful cinematography. Mm-hmm. And even Wonderfalls, which is fucked up in a whole different way. Whole different way. I did enjoy Wonderfalls. Wonderfalls is lovely. I might try to actually watch that then. It, it didn't last very long. Well, I know no. they all... No. They cancelled after three episodes, and then you got the... Is it nine episodes season? They put it wow. out on DVD? I think it's yeah. nine or thirteen. Pushing Daisies has two seasons, but they're they're not full order seasons. It got the full, me, like, 24 episode it. order, but it was right during the writer's strike, which yeah. is why that show got screwed over. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's Damn beautiful. It. Certainly his shows are visually stunning. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. The smallest show would be the easiest for me to get. Th- I still want to start watching Elementary, but you just go, how many episodes are there? Like, is it a full more than 20 episode season? Like, my yeah. God, how am I going to get through that? Yeah. It's I- worth it. Out. I know. I really want to watch it. And I, my sister gave me her Netflix password. So I'm, you know, now that I've gotten through these, well, most mm-hmm. of these DVDs for the show and, and then Dracula's going to start up and. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, how am I ever going to catch up? We're in season two of Elementary. I'm sorry. Or you could just listen to the podcast, which is next month we are doing the TV show, the fall TV show that was supposed to be September, but got pushed back on the schedule. So we'll be catching up on a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. And I am spoiled for like a major development yeah. with Natalie Dormer. Mm-hmm. So I, I did get spoiled for that. So it's not like that's a gigantic surprise. That was what made me go, okay, I need to watch this. Yeah. That's what they're doing. I've I've got to watch this. I've wanted to watch it for Lucy Liu, quite honestly. But you know, and I hear their relationship is really, really great. It um, really is. Finding out that there's 
you know, that and Sleepy Hollow apparently have a writer in common suddenly made me go, I bet I can imagine how they're doing it then. Because the <laughs> Abby Ichbod relationship is like, what is keeping that show afloat at this point? <laughs> God knows it's not the plot. I mean, I no, love Sleepy not. Hollow, but no. the, the plot's kind of a hot mess. I knew, I mean, that show is written by Kurtzman and Norsi. So the writing team behind Hawaii Five-0, which is just an hour-long commercial to Hawaii, which I happily watch. And, um, you know, the law lost in the new Star Trek movies. And there was a whole thing with the fandom and Bob Orsi and the Star Trek movies where he just waded in to a fandom thing and opened his big mouth. And these are, these writers do not write well. They're not well-written shows. But somehow they managed to cast actors with so much charisma and the leads have this great chemistry with each other that you basically watch for the pretty and for the characters. Uh, so that's what's happening with Sleepy Hollow in that, yeah, it's the, the relationship between the leads that keeps you there, which, whereas Elementor actually has better writing on its side as well. But the thing with the Star Trek writers, he came in and says, why don't you write your better own script that's better? It's like, you're talking to the fandom that essentially created what fandom does. These people could write a way better script than you. And Brian Hill could write a better script than you because he wants a Star Trek TV series. (laughs) Somebody give him a mix, please. (laughs) They are. And and putting them on an archive of our own. They are writing them. Yeah. Yeah. And I really do want someone to give Brian Fuller the money to do the Star Trek series with Angela Lansbury and Rosario Dawson as the captain (laughs) and first mate. (laughs) I really want that, and I'm not even a Trekkie. Because he got his start writing Deep Space Nine and Voyager, so he knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, he did. And uh, as we mentioned, so we have now created Sleepy Hanimentary as the kind of counterpoint (laughs) to Super Hulak. And I was commenting on Twitter how much more diverse Sleepy Hanimentary is (laughs) than Super Hulak, if you look at those shows. Gonfrit has been thrown down. I saw somebody on Tumblr getting mad about, like, I don't think they went all three shows, but somebody, it, it was very clearly a Sherlock fan who was angry that people thought Elementary was better or more successful. And I'm like, well, it's of course a it's... pissing Sherlock fan. Yeah. I'm like, well, it's, of course it's more successful. It's got more episodes in a much larger market. Yeah, it's gonna have to be. Sorry. Um, but, but yeah, they they were very upset at the idea of there being a competing supergroup fandom. So, you know, watch watch out for that. <laughs> be be prepared. Do what you want, but be prepared. Yeah, well, we managed to get through a, you know, fairly popular Sherlock Holmes episode without any sort of hate mail or death threats. So That's impressive. I'm feeling yeah. pretty comfortable. <laughs> the Hannibal fandom also managed to escape from the clutches of Super Hulock. <laughs> Yeah, which entertains me so much. There, oh there was a brief moment where they were like, "Is the Hannibal fandom going to be the hit squad for everybody?" And Hannibal fandom was like, "No, <sighs> your own goddamn hit squad." <laughs> we're there not... were two kind of ugly moments, and I actually was unfortunately involved in one of them. Um, very early on, people were kind of making fun little invitation graphics where it was like welcome Hannibal fandom please come and write crossovers oh thank you super herlock fandom thank you and someone decided to do one that was like we don't want to have anything to do with you and supernatural is sexist and gross and thank you but we won't be playing with you 
I and it was like I don't know who elected you to speak for the trees, but I need you to sit down. And everybody was so mad. I think the girl ended up like deleting her Tumblr. It was awful. So more recently, this was when Stephen Moffat was at I guess Comic Con, and everybody went into a fresh round of Oh my God, I hate him. And so uh, I I made the mistake of reblogging something that was like. You know, Hannibal Fandom, how how would you make somebody into a souffle? And this may be what you're referring to is, mm-hmm. you know, are are the Hannibal fans now now the hit squad? And I just thought it was hilarious from a fandom point of view. You know, like nobody's actually gonna make somebody into a souffle. That's Exactly. A... However, that did spark quite the Twitter discussion on exactly how one would make people souffles. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do remember that. <laughs> I then got I got an, a question in my you know inbox that was like, "Do you really think that's funny?" And I was like, "Yeah, a little bit." I, it it <laughs> I, I it wasn't something realistic like barbecue. It was like souffle. Like you can't even do that. I think that's hysterical. And then it was pointed out to me that Stephen Moffat was driven off Twitter by death threats, and that's why that might not be funny in his case. And I was like, "Oh, so um." gonna have to disavow that and not here for that and so sorry about that and i just stay away from that as much as possible now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. zero zero things to do with that that's i guess the thing is when the fandom is not something sci-fi but instead just kind of real world and it's about killing and eating people you can't really make a funny joke that isn't in some way a death threat so, but I think I think that's where the flower crowns all came from. Yeah. Is part of it was we need something to to lighten the constant angst fest, and part of it was we just really need Will Graham to be happy. So let's give him a flower crown. <laughs> that smile was the most painful, <laughs> creepiest thing in the. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Let's check for a stroke smile. <laughs> yeah. I don't know which is creepier, his smile or Hannibal's smile. That was like the angle they shot it from. I was like, he didn't even look human. I was like, what <laughs> did you do? What did you do? Oh my God. I, I think one of the really great things about the flower crown side of fandom, which also includes, you know, let's, you know, Will Graham has a nice day.tumblr.com. I love that. And focusing on the dogs and, you know, we want to help Will. And it's focused the general energy and enthusiasm of the fandom onto positive things mm-hmm. rather than really creepy, I don't know if you mean it, Hannibal worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I, there is a little of, but most of the people I've seen who like the dark fic type stuff are completely aware. It's like, we don't want this in real life. We just enjoy dark fic. I'm like, okay, that's great. But they've they found a way to redirect the general free-floating enthusiasm into something really positive and fun and nice. And all I've seen all these other people in fandoms go, where did these people come from? They're really they're really nice. You know? Yeah. Where did the fandom it, come from? The, the politest fandom on Tumblr. That's one of the shows I'm, when people were saying... Um, I, I know there have been a lot of people on the internet who have sort of said, oh, well, if you like the show, you must sort of would it be one of those weirdos that worship serial killers and things like that. And, oh, look, all these people who are writing fan fiction about Will and Hannibal, don't they realize that it's totally messed up? And it's like, yes, yes. they do. They're <laughs> channeling why. their creative energies into doing something fun, something that creates an emotional respite from a show that is 
absolutely exhausting to watch at times. It is essentially about a man gaslighting another man into believing he's mentally ill. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we like to do things like have little flowers on their head or imagine them kissing because they're pretty or just having dogs <laughs> run around in the fields. We just want something a nice break from that that doesn't mean Mm. that we don't appreciate the show for what it is it doesn't mean that we are romanticizing serial killers we're just doing what fandoms do well that's definitely the conversation dana wants to have with me later this month so she's she's more on the and this is before she she really started watching the show she may have a different perspective on it now that she's watched it all the way through uh but but yeah coming to it from I love this and it means something very specific to me and very positive to me over the last 20 years. And the show being something very positive to me and Dana coming to it from, I don't really know a whole lot about this and it frightens and confuses me. All of you people, you know, what, what is going on with that and why do you like it? And Mm -hmm. we kind of had a, a dry run conversation about this. So I think it'll be, it'll be really interesting. Um, we had two conversations about it actually. And, um, after the second one, we actually started talking about why do we want to talk about this. I, I think it'll be very interesting, but I, I'd be really interested to see if she kind of changed her mind and, and came to the same point that Alina has. That that'll be that'll be interesting. But uh, well, I mean, it's hmm. not like Hannibal is complete. The villain protagonist is an existing concept in fiction. Mm-hmm. Hannibal is not the first ever protagonist of a story who's not the hero you're supposed to root for. So I don't think it's yeah. that alienating. Well, and she also said, well, would they have romanticized, you know, the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal? And I was like, that'd be the second movie right there for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I was... Thomas I Harris did that. He <laughs> did that, and I saw a lot of fans do that when the movie came out, and... You know, he kind of, he didn't have a hair breeze, he had a coat breeze. You know, it was very, like, dramatic and, you know, romanticized. And I was like, yeah, actually, yeah, we, we went through that once already. And she was like, uh-oh. Well, yeah. having not seen the movie, I always imagine kind of that Anthony Hopkins and, and Clarice, uh, Hannibal and Clarice relationship in terms of when people romanticize it. I see it kind of the way people sometimes see the Phantom and Christine, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, I mean, the Phantom is also, I mean, he's, people romanticize the hell out of him, and he's an unrepentant murderer and horrible Well, that's person. another example of the creator, in this case, Andrew Lloyd Webber, going full fanfic with the sequel, which is what mm-hmm. happened with Hannibal the book as well. Mm-hmm. You'd never go full fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> only go half fanfic. <laughs> when, uh, when I was on uh, A Matter of Taste, uh, Ian went on just the most amazing Phantom Love Never Dies tangent. <laughs> hey, I actually saw that in London. And he, Why? he explained this. Because I needed to. <laughs> and I was... And, yeah. I, I <laughs> oh, it was hilarious when we finally found out, like, clearly somebody has to die for everybody's sins at the end. Who's it gonna be? And, I mean, I won't spoil that, but you know, and then Fia goes, well, that means the title's not even true then. <laughs> and I was like, fuck everything. Really? 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 I swear, I talk about you guys on, on their show too. This is yeah, not just me. Yeah, like, shiny new toy. We're having kind of shy podcast flirtations of, hi, <laughs> shout out. <laughs> the girls' club and the boys' club. The and girls' the tree, club and the, the boys' club. We're like, and they're very young. They're very cute. They're very young. <laughs> Hey, I I actually enjoyed 
the performance of Love Never Dies that I saw. So it was it was worth the cheap tickets that I got to me. And it was the first time that I actually went backstage to collect autographs. So I did meet Ramin Karalu, who played the fantasy. Oh, he's so pretty. He's so pretty, and he was so nice. And he signed my program, and he very shyly asked, so so did you like it? Did you enjoy it? (laughs) It was very sweet. I mean, look, the story is a hot mess. It is based on The Phantom of Manhattan, which I still can't believe is a book that someone actually got published and it was not self-published, but you know. It was fun. It was a very enjoyable evening. <laughs> I'm surprised someone hasn't written a YA modern version of it yet, to be honest. Oh, God. Rule 30. <laughs> Thanks a God, lot. I've opened that door, haven't I? Yes. Fuck you. Well, there, there may be a rights issue at stake there, so we may be safe. Well, it is public ah, domain. It is the stories. The story is yeah. public domain, right? The story is public domain, so. Crap. I, I know it originally was. I didn't know if it still was after the Andrew Lloyd Webber involvement, but if it if it is, then yeah, we're all fucked. Thanks. <laughs> Good job, Kaylee. Good job. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I feel really dirty now about that. Sorry. <laughs> oh, one last thing about Hannibal is I'm sorry. I know the show is generally. Like I said, it's very heavy and emotional. But any time after the first time Will says, this is my design, I just... I smile a little bit. And all I hear in my head is that song, Stabula's Flawed Design. Do you guys remember it? It was very popular a few years back. <laughs> and I just... I, I have these visions of, of Hannibal, you know, fan videos set to the song now. See, I can't hear any song that has design in it. There's, uh, there's bad romance, obviously. You know, uh, something like I, "I want your horror, I want your design." But then there's a Susie Sue song that's literally like, "This is my design" in it. Wait, I was like, really? Back up. Bad romance. I always heard "I want your horror, I want your disease." Is that what it says? <laughs> to be fair, Lady Gaga sounds like she's singing while she's drunk and has her finger in her mouth at the same time, so it's really hard to tell. I I may have gotten this because I saw some fan vids to the effect. So I was like, well, that's why they did that. I did see a very funny fan, um, Hannibal fan vid set to uh, Cannibal by Kesha. Uh, look, we're going to link to the greatest crack vid of all time. The the one that has includes shots of Freddie Lowndes and the, the voiceover from Mean Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's Her hair is so big, it's full of secrets. <laughs> Surely the best crack vid is the Korean advertising for the show. Uh, yeah. Okay, oh, oh. that was official, too. That's, yeah, that's not crack vid, so that's brilliant. real. <laughs> oh, that, that, that was magic. Yeah. Magic. For such a dark and emotionally exhausting show, there are moments of humour that are deliberate. The fact that when Hannibal's serving food to um, Jack and he asks what meat it is, there's a small pause and he goes, pork. <laughs> Or just every time Will looks at Freddie Lowndes. Or every time Jack enunciates something very clearly, like, use the ladies' room. Which is always funny, by the way. Use the ladies' room. Or just go and watch the blooper reel for every time Jack yells and it cuts to Scott Thompson. He is genuinely terrified. Yeah, I I almost fell over, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a bit of casting I actually really like as well that we didn't touch on. The entire sassy crime trio. (laughs) The Investigators 3. We love them. 
I've been yearning for a return to the fundamentals of investigation. Where's Beverly? (laughs) (laughs) Did you see on Twitter after that episode where Hetty N. Park tweeted, So I'm back from jury duty. What did I miss? (laughs) Everything. (laughs) That was my my final punchline for the recap. Yeah, that she... That and she also... Oh, it must have been the episode where Will was in the hospital with the chicken soup. Oh, don't call it chicken soup. And she said that her mom was sitting there with her watching it and she said, well, maybe he ate me. Maybe that's where I am this episode. And her mother said, he's eating wonton soup, not, or he's eating chicken soup, not wonton soup. And she was like, really? You said that? <laughs> really? <laughs> really? And the fact that her mom is apparently a Will and Alana shipper. <laughs> <laughs> that's just common sense. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and then, although the investigators they had that weird moment where it turned out one of them leaked to Freddie Lowndes and then that was never brought up again you used me <laughs> and then yeah. I always felt really weird about that one investigator from then on but nothing ever really happened that was weird because I wouldn't have had any clue what was going on except that right before the relevant scene Brian Fuller tweeted we had a scene with Brian and Freddie, um, slip my mind, Allison. And but you couldn't see his face because of all of her, her hair full of secrets. And um, I can say that specifically. And so we cut it, and you know. Okay. So otherwise, and I think he told us all of that because he knew it didn't make any sense in yeah. the show for Brian to be like, "You used me," and being like, "What?" So I, I thought that would turn up as a producer's cut on the DVD, but it didn't. And oh. I, I kind of spent the rest of the season being like. Ah, Brian. Like, I really like him. I really like the actor. But I also was kind of inclined to take Will's side in any, you know, mm-hmm. antagonism that then happened. Oh, oh, can we just point out one thing? When the the horrible Angels Meet Wigs episode where he says, put a plastic sheets on the bed. And I'm sitting there going like, see, Sherlock, you don't have to contaminate yeah. <laughs> a crime scene to deduce correctly. That's right. That's right. I just was like... No. Why are you doing that? You are not paid enough to do this. And of course, said the camera goes right up his nostrils. Well, that was the episode you used the screen cap from. I could tell. Yeah. They just don't match. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Hugh Nancy. You're a very attractive man. I just wish I didn't have to stare at you from like down below so much. I enjoy how gleeful he is about the fact right that people there. make him flower crowns and plushies and things. I think that's adorable. Oh. Yeah. Or he talked about someone made him an embroidered um, little figure of Will and he says, my wife's taking up Needlepoint, but she's not very good. <laughs> it's like, oh, the gauntlet has been thrown down, Claire Danes. You're going to have to return to that. <laughs> or their site with the airport carpets, which oh. I hadn't heard about until that came up at the panel. Okay, did that not land them on some terror watch list because they kept on taking pictures at airports? Yeah, he was kicked out of a, a lounge because of terror laws for taking pictures. I think it was in Boston. Was it Boston? <laughs> Boston. The, I the, yeah. I love that someone asked him about that so he starts talking about it and everyone else in the panel looks so confused and he has <laughs> to explain to them what is going on with the airport carpets. Like they thought they were joking and he was like, no, no, this is a thing. This really is a thing. <laughs> Alright. Oh, Brian Fuller has just tweeted Will Graham's book. Well, Graham wrote the book about um, insect insect activity and indicator of death. Right. Did. And they now have a copy of the book. How cool yeah. is that? Nice. That's, that's mentioned in, uh, I think, what, the 
first episode? Is that what Beverly says it. to him? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I went to Twitter to see what you were talking about. Breaking news. Charlie Hunnam drops out of Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just pissed the air. Breaking news. <laughs> oh, he's run away. Save yourself. Save yourself. Coming oh, soon.net. If that quote that people retweeted just kind of shamed him into it. Which quote in particular? The one where he said, like, it's important to just do the work you respect and not just go after the big money. I didn't hear that. Oh. (laughs) That was a little bit Tumblr and people were like, you want to say that again? There's not even a news link here. Oh my god. Anglo fees, we bring you the news as it breaks. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm mean, CNN. Not okay. actually. If only streamed shows. live. <laughs> yeah, here's a reply to that. Why? Beats me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Well played, good sir. Well played. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Okay. Well, that's going on Tumblr.com. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So before we let our listeners go, I have homework for them. Your homework, your your assignment, should you choose to accept it, uh, is for our next month's uh, TV, new fall TV lineup episodes, everybody has to follow Orlando Jones on Twitter and Tumblr. Because he is God's gift to fandom. He's out of control. He is. He's crossing all the streams. He's reading all the fanfics. <laughs> For those who don't know, this is the actor who uh, who's in Sleepy Hollow. And he just waded right into fandom like he belongs. And is like, oh, look at all the fanfic. You guys should write that. And oh, we're doing this. And the fandom just went, what? Wait. Yes, I sir. Mean, honestly... Before Hannibal, I would have said, look, don't cross the streams, don't wade into it, Um, just let fandom exist outside, because these interactions always end badly. And Fuller has managed to, I mean, he's got so many balls up in the air that he's kept spinning and doing the thing while he's doing backflips and shit, that... He he has interacted with the fandom. He's sort of helped kind of... I don't want to say he's helped direct the fandom, but he's encouraged the fandom to go in the happy flower crown as taking the flower crown from Comic-Con and then passing it around the set and having everybody with their pictures taken with it. I mean, it was with that crown that he then, then wore out and they're now making another one. Fault supplies. Bought supplies to make little the butterflies. Up. They're gonna have butterflies <laughs> because, of course, it is. I Why not? So. Yeah, I love that. I think he's I love done a really good job setting the tone. Yeah, the, and I mean, it's by... such a silly thing that shouldn't make you as happy as it does, which is an actor wearing pink flowers in their hair, and it does. Mm-hmm. And he got basically all of them as well. I mean, is there he any made actor a checklist? He made a checklist, and yeah, yeah. there's a checklist. <laughs> I think the circle is. Did complete. they get all the dogs? Just one. Just, just one. Just, just Winston. Winston. Okay, how about the Dire Raven stag? Has it worn the crown? No, they haven't had the stag yet. Although, I, I know that the last I saw the Dire Raven stag's Twitter icon does have a red flower crown photoshopped onto it. No, I do wonder if they, if they, 
if they don't for any of the scenes have any kind of prop for it, it might be pure CGI all the way. It is pure CGI. Pure CGI. No, I mean it is. But they do have the um, the prosthetic of the the sort of Hannibal Wendigo, which they could put it on. Yeah. So, uh, nightmares forever. Oh my god. And that's <laughs> seriously freaky season two poster. Yep. Oh, Jesus. Ooh, I wasn't there. happy about that. What was that? I mean, Ooh, it was good, wait. but oh man, warn me before that comes up again. Oh Jesus! Which one? The uh, uh, the Windigo in in the plaid suit with yeah. 2014 oh, spelled out at the bottom. I found it, Lincoln. Yeah. Um, I will say I I watched the effects featurette, and a good third of it is about how they did the stag, and it is pretty much entirely CGI. Mm-hmm. But at one point, Brian Fuller does in fact call him the Raven Stag just once, but he <laughs> does. That's my yeah. contribution to history. That's it. <laughs> That's it right there. Well, you're also a trope namer. I am. Those are my two greatest accomplishments. <laughs> they are. All right. Have we exhausted the depths of our squee? Oh, almost certainly not. We could go on for another several hours. <laughs> oh, I'm but sure we it's could. inexhaustible. <laughs> though. But we probably exhausted our audience. <laughs> <sighs> so thank you very much, Cleo, for being part of this one-year anniversary. As a long-expected podcast, as I... <laughs> promised eight months ago yeah like that yeah i think uh episode four was the oscar one and this will be episode 13 13 yeah so yeah it was so nice to have an old friend for brunch (laughs) 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 it's dinner for you yeah, but I'd already eaten dinner, so this is my, you know, my aperitif or whatever. Maybe snack. <laughs> Late night snack. Late night snack. <laughs> All right. So thank you, Cleo. Uh, I promise pictures of the avocado, so yep. that it's proof that we we don't just say this, people. We actually go we actually sacrifice go the, the distance. <laughs> and. Uh, the uh, almost human hasn't premiered yet, so and obviously Dracula. But after those two, we'll be pretty much set to start uh, recording. Yep, I'm giving you the rundown. So we'll, we'll see you in mid-November. Um, I I'm going to San Diego next weekend to hang out with our senior Comic Con correspondent, Papaya Junebug, where she's going to let me touch the finale script that she won. Oh, say the- hi. At the Nerd HQ, which I was the one who got her tickets to that. (laughs) She was waiting in the hall for the Hannibal panel. And I was like, oh my god, they just announced that they're going to do a special Tumblr meetup. Do you want me to get you tickets? Fuck it. I'm just getting you tickets. Check your email. (laughs) You're a good friend. I am a good friend. I am a good friend. She also scored me one of the Hannibal drawings that they were giving away at the at the the panel. I have no idea what it's going to be or if it's going to be something I'm going to want to hang on my wall. I would have actually watched that happen then because I watched the uh, the panel. I watched both of them. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I remember which one she was, but I, I would have seen. I could have told you if I can figure out which one she is, I can tell you what picture it was. No, it wasn't one of the ones that she won. Um, oh. It was the giveaway that they did for the, the first panel. They hand, handed out tickets for everybody to go to the swag room and pick oh, up the swag room. 
Yeah. What the she swiggity won, swag room? The swiggity swag room. <laughs> um, what she won was a signed copy of the script for the finale for Savaro. Yeah, I know she. Um, which, I know she got that. Which we all watched Aaron Abrams sign. <laughs> he hadn't autographed any of them. <laughs> you fangirls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I wrote this up as a journal entry to be like, so it's like an hour and 45 minutes. I watched it so you don't have to. You know, so I wrote it out and I was like, I remember all of this. Mm-hmm. Good times. Good times. All right. Good night, That's everybody. A... Enjoy uh... your dinner. <laughs> bon appetit. Bye. Yeah, you have to say bye. Oh, bye. <laughs> you have been listening to Anglophies, a made of fail production.